What is thy bidding, my master? There is a great disturbance in the Force. Welcome to the Three Men in a Retrospective Podcast, Star Wars Retrospective Series. We would be honored if you would join us. Join Garrett. How you get so big that you fool of this kind? Matt. If he could be turned, he would become a powerful ally. And Adam. I thought that hairy beast would be the end of me. <laughs> of course I'd look better. As they review each film in the Star Wars saga. I am altering the deal. Pray I don't alter it any further. From George Lucas's original trilogy. Ready for some power? To the Ewok movies and prequels. There is no escape. Don't make me destroy you. All the way through the Disney sequels and side stories. Do I can? Yes! The boys will look at each film individually and decide how the popular film series holds up. Who's worried? Search your feelings, podcast listeners. How we're going to get out of this one? The percolated media Star Wars retrospective begins now. Now, release your anger. Only your hatred can destroy me. The Empire Strikes Back. Released May 21st, 1980. Budget on this was $30.5 million. Box office, $549 million. And this was directed by Irvin Kirshner. Alright boys, Star Wars is released, as we discussed last week. And as you can imagine, a science fiction revolution happened. We had Disney's response, which was The Black Hole. A movie I just loved as a kid. We had Alien. A series the three of us eventually plan to dive into. And we had the Star Wars Holiday Special. <laughs> In between this. Adam, I want to go to you first, sir. When did you see this? Did the hype of it catch up to you before you saw it? Did you know of the final twist, which we'll talk about? How, how did you eventually get to The Empire Strikes Back? You know, the first one that I ever saw, we're going to discuss next week. So I did not see this until after I saw Return of the Jedi. That was the first movie I ever remember seeing, and I saw it in a movie theater. So this one here, I have no clue when I saw it, if I knew the twist beforehand. I felt like I knew Yoda before I knew anything, because that seems to be a memory that I have first. But I think this is one, kind of like the others, that I had a dad who loved sci-fi, loved Alien, talked before he took me to see 2010. I think this is... Again, likely something that played around the house kind of on a loop. I know we had the tape. I can envision the RCA VHS tape with Empire Strikes Back written in pen on the side. So I don't have a first watch memory of this, unfortunately, like I do some of the others. Gaudreau, what about you? The prequels had already come out, I assume, before you dived into this one? Well, let's see. Phantom Mass was 99, so pretty close in time. So for me, I have this strange relationship with this film in particular of the original three for the reason that I don't have the shock of the big twist because I knew that going into the movie because somehow I had seen Return of the Jedi before I saw this one. I guess it was because Ewoks screamed accessibility for a young child and that's why I saw this one the last of the three. Now having said that, 
I've also had a weird relationship with this movie for years in that, Garrett, it seems like you and I, if you want the person to direct the sequel to a long-standing, critically acclaimed sci-fi movie, you get Irvin Kirshner. And I think it's crazy that we have discussed RoboCop 2 before we ever discussed <laughs> The Empire Strikes Back. And we did Never Say Never Again. God, amazing that we discussed those two films before we finally got to this one. As for me, I have a very distinct memory of, after the movie, me and my dad going to a McDonald's and talking about it. It might have been one of the re-releases. I don't really know. It, I, I'd imagine it had to have been, because, like I said, I was two and a half years old when this was out. It might have been in the build-up to Return of the Jedi, but I do have a distinct memory of going to theaters to see this movie. And, again, like last week, I had the record album. I had the toys. My God, the toys started coming in in abundance. I had the Hoth set, even though I did not get an Imperial Walker, which I was always pissed off about. I had Cloud City. I had a, one of the best been ships on this movie. I had a lot of things that were in this movie. This was the movie that really just showed me that a sequel, as a child, the saga was built on this movie. Let's talk about that. So, you might think that since he had the biggest hit in the history of film at that time, George Lucas would have had a cakewalk to make this sequel. But in actuality, this production proved to be even more stressful than last time. First, after he made $12 million in profits off the first film, he decided to avoid the studio system by making this independently and put his own money into it. He put $8 million of his profit up, and then eventually he had countless bank loans that were attached to this until the budget was up over $30 million. So Goudreau, much like Vince McMahon in that first WrestleMania, Lucas bet the farm on this thing. The whole filmmaking revolution he helped start would have pretty much been done for if this had failed. No, you're absolutely correct, and we also have to remember that George Lucas envisioned Star Wars as this thing he would do with the goal of him doing what he called more serious films. He wanted to go the way his contemporaries like Spielberg and Scorsese did, where they made quote-unquote real movies. Now, I'm not saying that to discredit Star Wars, but Lucas has always talked about wanting to make personal movies. And Star Wars has, it's his own Death Star, where he keeps coming back to it, it keeps getting rebuilt, he keeps being involved, even after it gets destroyed, and it gets constructed once again. So you're right that this was sort of his, I guess, his WrestleMania 2, where he sort of left the production in the hands of other people. Because if you know WrestleMania 2, that one was set in three separate cities. This one, you're breaking your characters off in, I guess, three main plots, if you want to get technical. So yeah, there's a lot of parallels with wrestling. It's a, it's all connected. And, and Star Wars is a, as much of a soap opera as the Randy Savage, Hulk Hogan, Miss Elizabeth storyline. <laughs> I love that you took that metaphor and ran with it. Adam, what do you think about that, man? I mean, Lucas bet the whole farm on this, didn't he? He sure did. And for someone that... It's amazing that he's been so disdainful of the studio system for somebody that worked with them for such a short amount of time. <laughs> Talk about his contemporaries, and they're known as some of the best directors ever, and they never really left the studio system, but Lucas betting on himself, and the way he did, I mean, this is an independent film for all intents and purposes, and that's, mm -hmm. that is that is pretty damn amazing, but what it meant to keep those merchandising rights as well, and being able to finance the rest of the saga basically off of those, and to use what he could do by doing this independently to create the best effects studio 
that Hollywood has ever seen, out of which spun off a little computer company that made animated commercials that then grew into Pixar. I mean, it's just phenomenal Mm -hmm. when you look at the choices, especially for all the shit that Lucas got for so long. When you look at the choices and decisions that he has made and what those decisions have brought and wrought in Hollywood, it is pretty damn amazing. If not for the grace of God, go we. It just slightly different choice. If he would have let Fox have the rights to it completely, everything would be different in Hollywood. FX Studios would be different. Pixar may not exist. It's amazing how these things work out. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that little mortgage that he had to take out on a house, and now he owns hundreds of acres up in Marin County, you know, some of the most beautiful, picturesque area up here, yeah. not 45 minutes from where I live. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's definitely a gamble that paid off. Let's talk about the screenwriting process. So, people think that Lucas just kind of stood back during this process because he only gets a story credit here, but that's actually not the case. The first draft was written by a woman by the name of Lee Brackett. Now, she was a science fiction writer who had actually worked with Howard Hawks. Matt, a gentleman me and you have spoken about in the past. And when he got this draft back, there really wasn't much to work with. The characterizations were all wrong, and just the way things happened, according to Lucas, just did not go right with where he was taking the story. So Lucas wrote two more drafts himself, and he knew that he wanted them touched up. I mean, we spoke about it last week. All of us gave Star Wars the highest of marks last week. All three of us also said that there are times, and we're going to see it when we get go through this saga, his writing's not exactly the best. So he knew he wanted to get this script a little touched up before it went before cameras. Who does he call? His buddy Steve, or Mr. Spielberg as we know him. Spielberg brings up a guy by the name of Lawrence Kasdan. Now, Kasdan was a novice author who had two unsold scripts, The Bodyguard and The Continental Divide, both movies that he would eventually make. And Kasdan did a once-over. And we're going to talk about the dialogue and flow of this movie. And I've I've said many times in the past that if you judge a movie by sheer feel, all the credit goes to the director. It is his job to get the script from page to screen, and that emphasis is what causes a flow. And it's why when we talk about, say, when Stephen King has a beef with a lot of the book translations, it's because his books have a different emphasis than what's on screen. And we'll talk about more of that when we get into those movies. But I think we can all say, boys, the way this dialogue is written and delivered, that this movie definitely has a different vibe to it. Oh, it does. But it has a different vibe altogether. Not just in the dialogue. By technical counts, it is a sequel, based on the fact that it's a continuation. But it also feels very much in the way that I think recent movies have bucked the trend of a soft reboot, kind of. People say The Empire Strikes Back is the template for modern sequels as far as escalation and a darker tone. So there's a lot here that is, I think, monumental in not just the immediate ways that followed this but 45 years later almost people are still referring to this as the i I guess the godfather 2 of sequels Uh, certainly with sci-fi because sci-fi is kind of a hard trend to do sequels for because i think of star trek those aren't really sequels Mm -hmm. as far as building off of one another outside of the genesis trilogy they're more of just new scenarios with those characters here this is very much a part two but i'll Put a pin in that, because I have words about this movie in particular. And I will not be saying them over a hologram like the Emperor. I think I'm going to say them in person. I think it's the template that so many sequels, as was said, it's the template for sequels, it's the template for reboot, rebootables, however you want to put it. It's the template for what is done now, 43 years later. 
Let's talk about directors then. So Lucas also knew, after the hell he went through on the first film, that he did not want to step behind the camera again. So he went over a ton of candidates, and who he landed on is a guy we've covered in the past, Matt, as we discussed. Urban Kirshner, director of RoboCop 2 and Never Say Never Again. Now, Kirsch was George Lucas's teacher at USC. Interesting choice. You know, at this point, the only thing I recognized on his resume was a movie that was actually co-written by a young John Carpenter by the name of The Eyes of Laura Mars, which is a movie I actually really recommend. It's a very well-made film. What a choice this was. You know, and, and Kirshner was adamant. You know, he, at first he turned it down. He turned it down two, three times before he finally accepted because he didn't want to follow up. And I don't blame the guy. <laughs> he didn't want to follow up the biggest movie of all time with a movie that is a complete turkey. But Lucas assured him, look, I trust your vision. I trust your flow with this. Matt, this is not a choice I would have gone with. Could you imagine if the internet was around in 1980, if this choice had come up? If the internet was around at that time, I think George Lucas would have been force choked like Darth Vader does throughout this movie. Just go for that left and right. Because for the record, while Lucas has admitted he's not a great director, this is a movie that he really fought against some of the changes. There's a great book I read years ago called Empire Building by um, Gary Jenkins. And he talks about how there's sort of an unsung person who's involved in some of the choices in this movie. That's Gary Kurtz, who was the producer. And I always attribute to him to sort of, I call him the Thelma Shoemaker to George Lucas' Scorsese, where he was really the person that kept Lucas in line, but also an advocate for his vision. Because there was a point where the movie was shown, the original cut, Lucas screened it to Coppola, Spielberg, Scorsese, you name it. And the book talks about how that first screening, when the movie was done, George Lucas stood up and said, you guys have ruined my movie. And he locked himself in an editing room, re-edited it, showed it. It was nearly laughed out of the theater. And Spielberg pulls him aside going, what are you doing? The first cut was so much better. And Gary Kurtz had to convince Lucas that, no, what you had originally was better. And, of course, Harrison Ford has documented that. He had his Hulk Hogan creative contract where he could make some <laughs> choices. I mean, look, he he does the finger point as well as Hulk Hogan pointing to his ear. So I'll have to find that book if anyone's interested in reading it. I really recommend it. It's curious, and I do have a lot of things to bring up about that as we go on. This has been, I think, undeservedly so, um, pointed at by people as Lucas saying that this is his least favorite of the entire saga. I call bullshit on that. I'll get into it, but I think there are other reasons why this wasn't the best of experiences for him, and he doesn't remember the movie fondly, and I think as a result, it kind of taints his feelings on it. This was the first movie in the saga to be released with an episode title, which was actually given by another unsung hero of the series, Alan Ladd. This guy was the one who championed Lucas the entire time, starting back from Star Wars, and he was back for this. There were a ton of issues that came up during the shooting, but we'll get into those as we dive into the film. What do you guys say? We go into Empire Strikes Back, unless, Adam, you have anything else to cap the intro off with here. Now, the only thing I'll say before we get into it is I feel like I've been lucky enough to see this movie now on pretty much every version that's come out. Before it got redone, I still remember the original version of this. I was lucky enough to see special editions as they got released, and obviously on Disney+. Plus. But then in tw- it was either 2020, 2021, when this got re-released in theaters during COVID as kind of a push to theaters, I took my two children. And so I was lucky enough to see this in IMAX with my kids full experience and kind of a special moment to say that I can take my kids to see Empire Strikes Back in a theater 40 years after its release. 
That's incredible. Yeah. And we'll have theatrical experiences to talk about next week as well. And speaking of that original version, for the record, if you have the VHSs, of the three, this one has the worst compositing on the cover <laughs> as possible because it's literally just a Stormtrooper helmet yeah. with, the, <laughs> Love with the walkers at the bottom. Because Star Wars has Darth Vader, Return of the Jedi has Yoda on it. They just picked a random Stormtrooper. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I found that interesting as well, especially since of all of the three, I think this has the least amount of stormtroopers in it. It does, and also uh, like this one, you would think Yoda would be on the cover of that one, not Jedi. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Good point. Adam, you touched on something I wanted to talk about real quick. The special edition of this. When they originally did those special editions in 1997, they were only going to do the first Star Wars movie. They weren't going to do the rest of them. But the first Star Wars movie was getting such good traction that. Lucas looked at it and was like, you know what? I think I could do something with the other ones, too. And this, believe it or not, has the least amount of touch-ups as opposed to the other two. And again, those, those will come up as we talk. Some good, and as always when he does this, some bad. Yeah, well, not only does it have the fewest, it's also the least, I guess I would say the least controversial of the three. When people talk about their gripes with the changes, most of them are reserved for New Hope and Jedi. I seldom hear people complain about the changes in Empire. And in fact, I think there's actually one that works better. I agree with that. But I also think there's one change in this that gets me every single time in a bad way. And we'll get to that as we get to it. Adam, you and I saw the special edition of this in theaters, correct? We sure did. I believe we did. Yep. So we started off with the fanfare and then the title a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. And for the second time, we get a crawl. Now, this crawl is interesting because last week's film was able to get away with it, given that, as we discussed, no one thought it was going to be successful. Now, the guild was not going to let it slide. And they actually fined Kirshner $25,000 for its use here, which Lucas ended up paying himself. So right away, we get this crawl, and all of a sudden, again, now Lucas is already running into problems here. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's amazing. It was a one-time thing to let it go. But I think that's also George's way of just being like, well, I did it once, and damn it, I'm going to do it again. George Lucas be damned. You know, he's going to get his way. So my complaints begin immediately. So my problem with this movie begins from the opening crawl, specifically the text. Wow. The text talks about how it is a dark time for the rebellion. I'm going to be paraphrasing because I don't remember, but they talk about how although the Death Star has been destroyed. So me, I said, okay, they use the word although. Even though the whole point of the last movie was to destroy the Death Star, this thing they talked about as this all-powerful instrument of destruction, and the rebels destroying it, following that up with the word although... Kind of, in my mind, makes it feel like less substantial that they did that if the Empire is still able to drive them out of their new base. This is the first time, and one of my problems with this movie, yeah, it's going to be one of those shows, everybody, send your hate mail my way, where I feel like the Empire Strikes Back sometimes either pretends that Star Wars didn't happen or recontextualizes it to make some of it feel insignificant. Well, I think the although is their problems aren't over. The fact that it was blown up doesn't mean that the rebels have won. It just means they've won that battle. A war isn't won in one day. A war is won over time. To a point, but I do see Matt's point. And I think part of that is there was nothing else beyond the Death Star that we really knew in, in a way of there were sequels to be had in these types of movies for the most part, that it wasn't looked at that way. Though you would think if Lucas, liking the anthology format of serials and things of that sort, maybe there would have been a little bit. I see the point, but it's never been in my mind. 
From the crawl, we move to its Star Destroyer, which unleashes a bunch of probe droids into space, and one crashes on Hoth, and we get our first look at one of these probe droids, which looks like it came straight from War of the Worlds. These things scared me to death as a child. The noises these things make, the way they just kind of move along the snow, they scared me. Scared me as a kid, loved the design, creepy as hell, they're like little metallic spiders. We then get a look at Luke Skywalker riding through the snow on a Tauntaun and looking a little different than we saw him last. Uh. <laughs> as Mr. Hamill was in a nasty motorcycle accident right before the release of the first film. Definitely not the fresh-faced boy we saw last time. No, and I think the fact that he gets punched in the face by the Wampa is a way to respond to that. I think they gave a reason to explain, because when you see him later on, they put cuts on him when he's in that tank. So mm-hmm. I, I think they're kind of recognizing it. But they've always responded to it, because remember the holiday special, which I'm sure we'll talk about at some point, uh, I'll drink more. They cloth his his hair down to distract you from looking at his face. Because you watch the holiday special, he looks like a wax dummy. <laughs> yes, he does. Because it, I think they, they caked him in makeup to hide it. Whereas I think here, they realize, all right, we have to shoot a whole movie, and Luke is one of the focal points, if not the focal point. Can't shoot around it. It's not like you can grow a mustache. Hey, Justice League. <laughs> yeah, I think I knew the story kind of always, at least growing up, about it and everything else, and there's been a lot made as to how much was was put in because of it, but he's clearly, it's not just the years, it's the mileage kid, because he's, he's aged 10 years in these three. It's incredible the difference in look it is. when you look at this week. And it also makes you wonder if the reason why he went into voice acting is because either a lack of confidence or studios... They yeah. couldn't cast him for his age because he didn't really look at it anymore because he was, what, 19 when they made New Hope? Around that, yeah. Not secure, he's early 20s, but he looks considerably older just based on what happened. So it's unfortunate. I definitely think it hurt his career in a lot of ways, but I, I recognize that him getting bitch slapped by the Wampa is a way for them to get around it. Luke gets no breathing room in this movie. He shows up only to get no. punched. That's a great point, Matt. I, I didn't even think about it until you brought it up, but you're absolutely right. He had a whole second career after this, and we discussed that last year when we went into Batman. His voice acting as the Joker is phenomenal, and I think he really made his emphasis on, you know what, I'm not going to get as many roles based on my looks anymore. I want to go for the voice acting, and it paid dividends for him. I have a lot of respect for Mark Hamill, you know. We're going to knock his acting a lot when in the course of this series, but I have to say, while studying the man, and, you know, and he's a great social media presence, too. He's not talking whatsoever. He always has funny things to say. He's always very kind to his fans. I have a lot of respect for the man. And it's not like his accident killed his career. He just went in a different direction. Like he, he did a lot of Broadway yeah. work in the 80s. He was in The Elephant Man. He was in Amadeus. He had done a lot of other stuff. It's just when you think of these big mainstream movies, you think of these actors who go on to, I guess you'd call it like the Robert Downey Jr. model nowadays. They just do these big movies, but I guess his counterpart, Harrison Ford, kind of filled that void. Because I'm sure Harrison Ford was like, look, I got Indiana Jones now. Like, is this the end? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which is probably a big reason why he wanted to be killed off, but we'll talk about that. Let's talk about the ice planet of Hoth. Now, this was an idea of Lucas to, obviously, to change the environments from the film prior. We've gone from the desert, sand, to ice here. But Lucas had another point where he wanted to prove how far the effects have come. Because... People don't think about this when they watch it. It is harder to hide effects lines when the entire background is white. So he wanted to prove that he could do that. And I applaud it, man. It's a, it's a different look for this movie. And it's something that it goes to Matt's point where it definitely feels like part of a different series in some ways. It does. When I think of these three movies, I always think of a different color. First movie, I think of, I don't know why, I think of red or brown. Wow. And a new, 
I was going to say brown, yeah, but not red. Brown and A New Hope. I think of blue and Empire between Hoth and Cloud City. I think of blue. And Dagobah has a blue backdrop. And, of course, Return of the Jedi, I think of green. Because when I see Ewoks, I think of Kermit the Frog. But that's a conversation we'll have next week. Amazing that that came from a colorblind person, isn't it, Adam? It really is. It really, really is. <laughs> Luke is looking around, and he sees that a meteor of some kind has hit. He goes to investigate it, and boom, is taken right off his Tauntaun, who is then killed. Han shows up at the base, and one thing about this movie that is apparent if you watch it an inordinate amount of times, this movie spends a lot of time fixing things. Because almost every single scene has somebody that is fixing something. Here we're seeing X-Wings being worked on, and Han's yelling at Chewie, who is working on the Millennium Falcon. This goes on a lot throughout the course of this. <laughs> it does. This movie's repairing not only the industry, but itself from beginning to end. <laughs> yeah, like, the, they should have called the Star Wars Episode Five. Everything is broken. <laughs> Han goes in and tells his commanding officer that he has to leave and is then told that he's a great pilot and it's sad that he's being lost. We then get a scene of Han and Leia arguing because in my eyes, all Han wants is for her to tell him that she doesn't want him to go. Great back and forth here as this character of Leia really hasn't lost a step when it comes to being the ballsy nom damsel in distress that she is not. And I'm going to point out a few instances in this film where I think Fisher really shines and this is one of them. I love these fights between these two. Well, if anything... What I do appreciate about this movie is that the characters feel like they're in a natural progressive state. We'll talk about later on in this saga how people revert back to their old ways. I think here there's actually impetus. Like, I feel like Leia is more authoritative, which is a lot considering mm-hmm. where she was in A New Hope. And Han is still... You still get the sense that the only reason he sticks around is because he was not afforded the opportunity to leave when it presented itself. It's amazing. This movie... It... It's weird. I thought about this a lot. Some of the differences between the three different sagas we get of Star Wars, the prequels, the originals, the sequels. This trio is so fantastic together, and they're fantastic apart. But Han and Leia, there is something special about these two that I don't think we get throughout the remainder of the saga, and I don't think we ever will. Part of that is Carrie Fisher and Harrison Ford's on-again, off-again while they were filming these films. But there is just something palpable between them when they're fighting, when they're not that is just refreshingly honest anytime that we see them together i fucking love it i do too and it should be said too that she said this in her book so i'm not saying anything that's been out of line here but she indulged in a lot of the white stuff while on this film oh and uh, there's a scene later on where they came from a party where they're hanging on to each other because they had to yeah, so make no bones about it. There was other influences going on here besides a great set of acting skills. I'm applauding Fisher a lot in this because I, I think she really brings something that Margot Kidder brought in that second Superman movie. I'm going to make that parallel again. There's just something that I don't see from her interacting again after this that she does here that I, I really applaud. This argument seems so weird and frantic because they're fighting in a hall that is being walked in by other people and even some huge piece of equipment going God knows where. Some great directing here and the dialogue is good too as Han says that she must be afraid that he's going to leave without giving him a goodbye kiss and she responds that she'd rather kiss a Wookiee and he says, I can arrange that. Again, I think this is Kirshner's influence going on here. Yeah, well, the dialogue feels nowhere near as stilted as it did in the first one. I think that's really the biggest change because i think this movie compares very favorably from a dialogue pacing perspective to raiders of the lost ark which kasdan also Mm -hmm. is attributed to so i think that's that's a hallmark of his writing or at least it was for a lot of his movies because you look at his non-star wars movies like the big chill is one i always think of where 
By the way, you can also use that to, to describe this planet they're on, because everybody is freezing, and the only ones who are not miserable are the droids, probably because they don't have sensors. Yeah. <laughs> and I like to think that this takes place at the Kazan Cinematic Universe, where Hoth is also where Dreamcatcher takes place. So that at the Stephen King, where they go to a cabin on Hoth. Speaking of the two droids, we got our first look at C-3PO and R2-D2, and I do love the musical accompaniment here as they're rolling through the hall bickering, and we're getting musical cues from the first film, and 3PO ends the conversation by simply yelling, Oh, switch off! Talk about another couple in love arguing. (laughs) (laughs) Right. 3PO tells Han that Leia's concerned that Luke hasn't come back yet, and Han heads out to find him, yelling, I'll see you in hell, as he goes. We then see Luke in a cave. Now, this cave seems funny because... One thing they did do in this was a lot of work on this scene. In the original theatrical film, I remember this so vividly because I had it on VHS and I'd watch it over and over too. All we're seeing is Luke hung up and then a tracking shot of the cave walls. And every once in a while, there's a hole where we see something is coming for Luke. But here we're getting CGI shots of this wampa eating a leg of some sort, even though there's no meat on that bone, making his way towards Luke. And this is an important scene as it establishes that Luke, in at least a small way, has learned to use the Force, and he forces his lightsaber into his hand and slices this monster's arm off, another thing that we see multiple times in the series. And the reaction the creature gives was again added for the re-release in 1997. Even though this was kind of used to hide the fact that Luke is different looking now, I do like the way this is played out. If you're going to do something and do some rewrites that hide that, this would be the way to do it. Yeah, I like this scene. I mean, we get a creature here. It's amazing because if this was done today and if it was done with, oh, I don't know, either a different gender or different ethnicity for an actor, there would be nothing but just hate and derision because how do we suddenly get a new force power that we've never seen before? Instead here, it feels natural that Luke is able to to draw, presumably the, using the Force to draw the lightsaber to his hand, and we're getting an escalation. We're showing more than we have before. We're showing that there's some magic here with the Force. There's other things that you can do with it, because we haven't seen that really yet. On top of it, I think this is some of the best additions for the special releases that we're going to see out of anything. It's just the added scene to the Wampa here. When we get the full creature shot and it's like hunched over and it's munching on presumably, you know, tauntaun pieces and stuff and it's dripping and it's just really cool seeing this full creature for more than a half a second. We got to see it before. It looks like the thing that chases Eucorn Cornelius in the Rudolph short. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> and, and for the record, I would be one of those people complaining because my problem with the force is that it does whatever the fuck the writers need it to do. Yeah, um, it does. <laughs> It is so thinly defined that you can't really poke holes into anything because the counter-argument is always the Force. You know what? It's because of people like you, <laughs> we get what we get in the prequels. God damn it. Well, also, for the record, like, I'm, my, my least favorite thing about Star Wars, and I said this on the last show, was always the Force components. Even here, I like that the Rebellion is still fighting a war against oppression. That's the part of this movie that really resonates with me. Did they ever say for the record, because I don't know, how long this takes place after A New Hope? Years. I believe they're supposed to be, what, Adam, like five, six years apart, correct? The movie doesn't say, I believe, whether it was in the original novelization or since, but it's been a few years. And I thought it was three to four, but it could be five. But yeah, it's been a couple years that the Rebellion's been on the run, and such that they've had to hide more than once. Uh, I was just curious, because Luke's progression, because in A New Hope, the most we see him do is just 
switch off his targeting computer and kind of go by instinct. But you could also blame that. Like, if you're an atheist like Han, uh, you could say, oh, that was dumb luck. You know, that wasn't really the Force. But we also get the main bad guy saying the Force is strong with this one. He notices it, too. Yeah, although by that logic of it being five years, it makes Darth Vader seem less competent, given that he hasn't captured this kid in five years. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I'm going to get you next time, Gadget. So Luke is out in the snow and falls, and what he sees is something nobody on the crew thought they'd see until the very last minute. Alec Guinness did not want to come back, and it's not for reasons that Star Wars fans think. He actually had some sort of eye condition where he could not be under the hot light of a movie set for a set of minutes, and Lucas really had to work hard to wine and dine him to convince him to come back. He did indeed come back. I think he worked a day. He got a small percentage of the gross as payment and is not really giving a good performance here. He just seems disinterested in this one, which I thought was what we were going to get last week, but I was genuinely surprised. Here we're getting what I was expecting the entire time. Yeah, this is... uh. Obi-Wan Kenobi Skyping his phone performance. <laughs> like, like, if this was 2022, they would have done, like, what they did for Thomas Hayden Church and Reese Ivins in that last Spider-Man movie, where he just uh, sends his dialogue, and they digitally impose an image of him and have his mouth move like in Babe on those animals. Because he looks so disinterested. It's just like, <sighs> Luke, go to Dagobah. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not even going to bother training you anymore. I'm passing you on to someone else. Who, by the way, I have never mentioned before. <laughs> yeah, I started training you, but the narrative logic says that... Because theoretically, if he can reproject, the logic should be he keeps training Luke. But no, he's like, all right, I don't give a fuck anymore, so I'm going to go pass you off to Yoda. The good thing is on Hawk, because he literally gives him the cold shoulder. <laughs> oh, to be fair, this entire saga might as well be called Jedi Make Poor Decisions. Yeah, Obi Wan especially. So Obi Wan tells Luke that he needs to go to Dagobah and find Yoda. And as he does, Luke starts having convulsions. And here's where Han shows up. He slices up a tauntaun and puts his friends in it to keep warm. This was a weird, weird thing to see as a kid, and it completely grossed me out. <laughs> it, it, it's weird, it's gross. I mean, imagine that this was written. That's the crazy part. Somebody gets yeah. this idea. Yeah. People at ILM had to figure this out. Though I'll say, to their credit, Mythbusters also proved that this is possible. <sighs> wow. Gotta yeah. love it. Yeah, they had to figure this out in the PG movie, too. Yep. Yeah, true. Well, you could also get away a lot more back then than you could now. This would uh-huh. be opposite, you know, because we talked about, like, survival, logic, and movies, where this was feasible. It's the opposite of, in Batman Begins, there's that line that Rachel Gould has where he talks about, rub your chest, your arms will take care of themselves, which theoretically would get everybody <laughs> killed who tried that out in the wilderness. You know what's cool about this, though? Was seeing Han wield a lightsaber. Yeah. <laughs> That was kind of badass as a kid. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because with how it's said, which is vague, you get the sense that only Jedi or, like, people who can feel the Force can wield a lightsaber. And Han, in the last movie, was the atheist. He's like, oh, that that old, it's no match for a good blaster, but he still can wield it properly Mm -hmm. and not slice his own arm off. We're seeing a search party of speeders being sent out as Rogue Two is the one who finds them, and I'm sure Disney Plus is in production of this guy's backstory as we speak. <laughs> oh, it's going to be now Ro- Rogue Two of Star Wars story. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Can't be worse than Solo. <laughs> 
Uh, we'll get there. We then see Luke in a chamber that heals his wounds, and I, I wanted this toy so bad, I never was able to get it as a kid. What, the Luke kissing uh, his sister toy? Yes, yes. <laughs> that whole set, man, I wanted it so bad. Yeah, and this is so popular that freaking Dragon Ball Z just copied this completely. I didn't get it as a kid, but I do have one now. Oh, do you? Yeah, and it's a big, nice figure. And it comes as a matching set. There's one of Luke in the back to tank, and there's a little lever so you can move him like he is inside of it. And then I got one of Vader in his meditation chamber that kind of opens and closes as well. So I'll say thank God for toy re-releases now that I'm old and have a little bit of disposable cash. We cut to what amounts to the only scene of our three heroes in the same place at the same time. A weird addition here is when 3PO says, Master Luke, it's so good to see you fully functional again. And then Luke just says, thanks, 3PO. That was ADR that was not in the original cut. I don't know why they found it fit to add that. Has it been confirmed, and I, I don't mean this to be crass, but have we ever talked about if George Lucas has OCD? No. Hmm. I, I, I don't know. You know, in seeing him in interviews, he's definitely a different guy, but I don't know if OCD would be a part of that. It's an interesting theory, though. Yeah, OCD 3PO. Yeah, that, that'd be a... <laughs> You say, I don't mean it to be crass, and you just come out with a line like that. <laughs> so we're seeing some good world parte between these three, as Han says that Luke now owes him two, making reference to the time that he saved him in the trenches in the last film. But we then get, perhaps, and looking back, the most controversial scene of the movie. Han is his normal scoundrel self, which really pisses Leia off. And she then kisses Luke, who we'll learn is her brother, eventually, very passionately. Number one. They, meaning these two, did not know they were brother and sister at this time. And number two, she is doing this not as a way of showing that she's in love with Luke. She is doing this to make Han jealous. End of story, and I'm sticking to it. Oh, she's for sure doing it just to get a rise at Han. But to me, it also shows how often George forgets what he says in interviews as opposed to what he's actually done, because that whole, I had it home laid out the whole time, and I knew they were brother and sister, bullshit, or else you wouldn't have done this, because it's just, of all the things you tweet throughout freaking the six movies you did, you couldn't have tweaked this. <laughs> this needs a little editing here. Yeah. Just, You're like, it, George, it's, it's okay to remove stuff. You don't yes. have to keep adding stuff. Uh, I guess that was the only direction for this kiss that Kirshner decided to keep from George. Make this faster and more intense, too. Like I said, guys, I don't, they didn't know. So I think you can make that as an out. I'm going to defend the same. Plus, again, it's the only scene we see of these three in the whole fucking movie. And that's what was built on in the last film. So I, I'm going to defend it. I'll be that guy. I do love the gesture that Luke does here as he puts his hands behind his head and leans back. This is the exact same thing Chewie did last week when he won the chess game. Yes. <laughs> Which is a reference I never actually picked up on until I watched it for this viewing. We then see that the probe droids have a beat on the Rebels, and one thing I want to point out is the editors made the wise decision to cut to this scene in the base, because what was here before was more Wampa action, and these scenes, while not fully realized, can be seen on the Blu-ray set and uh, Disney Plus extras. We have Rebels avoiding the room that the Wampas are in, and there are little hints of how dangerous they are, and later when Vader and some troops head in to search the base, we see 3PO peel off the danger sign on the door where the creatures are being held, and then troops open that door and get pulled in by the Wampas. Again, I'm so glad these scenes ended up on the cutting room floor. This is the, the perils of occupying a world that is inhabitable. The rebels have to make this up as they go along. I mean, this planet is so cold and filled with animals, it's inhospitable. <laughs> Are you kidding me? That is something even my fiancé would fucking scoff at. That fucking yeah, even, yeah, Fozzie Bear would say, Wampa. 
And this is also why when they mention something metal has been spotted by the Rebels' radar, Leia's like, well, then it couldn't be one of those creatures. She was referring to this room. Han says that he's going to go ahead and head out with Chewie to check it out. He does, and the probe droid spots Chewie and is distracted as Han takes it out. But the look on his face tells it all before he reports back to the base that it seems that the Empire knows where they are. So we're over 20 minutes into the movie, and we've seen some pretty cool things. But one thing we haven't even discussed or mentioned yet is right here as we cut to some Star Destroyers, a Super Star Destroyer. Yeah. And contained in that Star Destroyer is, to me, the star of the movie. We mentioned last week that Vader pretty much served as the muscle to Peter Cushing's Grand Moff Tarkin. And next week, he's the accompaniment to the Emperor. But here, he is an empire on his own. Yes, we'll get a scene of him checking in on his boss later, but right here in this movie is where Vader gets a reputation for being a badass. And it is also where John Williams gives us a theme for this character, the Imperial March, and boy, does it hit. I love this intro scene so much. It's fantastic. It's awesome. This is one of my favorite ships in the Star Wars universe. I love the Super Star Destroyer, the Executor, Executor, whichever way you want to pronounce it. It's just something amazing about that ship. Vader's entrance, everything here is freaking top-notch. Because, yeah, as you said, we've had some action, we've had some peril, we had some incestuous romance, and now we're suddenly switching to our big bad Vader daddy is back, and things just stepped up. He's definitely more... He's more authoritative. He doesn't have to, have to report to his supervisor. You know, the Emperor is more of the CEO, where he just skites in to make sure things are going okay. But because of that, Darth Vader still feels like the same character, though, where he is... I want to say flies off the handle, because that's... He gives that guy he chokes eventually a lot of chances to fix shit. But I also like that Vader now doesn't have the leash, necessarily, that Tarkin had on him, and he's free to just dispose of who he sees fit. So I wouldn't call him the star of the movie because I, I think that's actually one that I could not designate because I think this is an ensemble piece in a lot of ways. But I definitely like how he is still scary and he's still unpredictable, which is not always something you could say about Darth Vader down the road. I also like this dark force field that surrounds the ship as we're seeing it once again, like last week, just engulf the entire screen. Just Awesome stuff here. And Kirshner does a nice job of situating shots that establish just how much of a threat Vader actually is to this crew. As we're seeing his cape just move along the floor and the deck officers look up in fright. This is just good stuff. Mm-hmm. We're seeing Vader. He's looking out the scenery outside before seeing a report from Hoth. And it takes two seconds of hearing the report before Vader emphatically utters, That's it. The rebels are there. <laughs> All right, let's settle the debate right now. There seems to be a small debate, one that's not nearly as passionate as Han shot first, about whether or not, at this point, Vader knows that Luke is his son. We'll see a touched-up scene later that emphasizes that he doesn't know. And honestly, when in this scene he proclaims, that's it, I'm sure Skywalker's with them, it's not because he knows that Luke is his son. It's because he sees Luke as a threat, given that it was him who took out the goddamn Death Star. It's petty. It's like, you killed my base, I want to go after you. Because remember, in that first film, even before the special edition, Vader got behind Luke and his X-Wing, as I said earlier, and said, the Force is strong with this one. He knows that Luke is a threat, and that he would be a major asset if he were by his side. And the fact that later he finds out that he's his son, well, that's just icing on the cake for me. It's strange, because you would think that the, the power of the Force, the power that Vader has through it, that he would know. But by that logic, that would mean that when he's interrogating Princess Leia, that he would know that she's his daughter. So you can't have one without the other. And it 
bugs me any time that I think that Vader had Leia there the entire time and is too ignorant or too weak in the Force to know that she's his daughter. So I have to go with just thinking that it was un- incapable of knowing it. Not only do I agree with Adam for that sentiment about Leia, I think the fact that the Emperor has a line, search your feelings, I think is what he says, I think that's the light bulb moment. If he knew that all along, then he would have, he likely would not have, at the end of A New Hope, he was shoot to kill mode with Luke in front of him. So I, I think there's just too many circumstances. I mean, look, fucking, it's the problem with the Force. I guess the Force, it's like Superman glasses, where it's like, you can't see familial connections with the glasses. Nope, it's because of the Force, you can't tell. But don't forget, that scene that you just mentioned is a touched-up scene in this movie that they did to emphasize what he finds out later. So, okay. And I'll talk about that scene when we get to it. It is something else in that original edition, let me tell you. We then cut to Han, once again working on the Falcon, as Luke prepares for battle. We then see Luke say goodbye to Chewie and Han, and this is the last time these two characters will be seeing each other until about a half hour into next week's movie. We see Vader in some kind of chamber that as a kid, again, I wanted this toy so bad. This thing where he just gets to turn around in the chair over and over. Fantastic. He gets a report that the rebels are alerted to their presence. And if you think your boss is an asshole, try reporting to Vader as he gets in contact with (laughs) Ozzel and kills him just by looking at him. And as his body is being dragged away, Vader just promotes Piet to Admiral. And boy, Piet could not look more excited if he tried. We then cut to a speech given by Fisher as Leia that apparently was one of the hardest monologues she's ever given. First of all, she detailed in her book that, again, she was not the most sober of people around this time, and she would hang out with Superman's own Margot Kidder a lot. So she was probably feeling both hungover and on a cocaine-induced high during this speech. Also, and you don't think about these things as you're watching the film because it's all in the background, but all that steam and energy around the actors in this scene, it emits a hell of a lot of noise. Combine that with how claustrophobic the scene feels with her being surrounded by all these dudes in a close-knitted space. And you can be damn sure it would be tough giving a speech like this. But she gets it out, and again, it proves that this isn't your normal Disney princess. This chick is in charge. Yeah, and I think that's something that's always been special about her. She's not a damsel in distress. You think that she is, and she's not. She's capable, and I think that's something that we had rarely seen at that time. She's not the first. It's just it wasn't nearly as common, and I think that's why she has stood the test of time. She's the antithesis of Princess Peach, or she's not there just to be rescued anymore. Well, she will be later on, but that's a conversation I'll revisit later. We see some rebel ships flee the system as cover shots are fired from another toy I begged for as a kid. These shots ended up taking out a Star Destroyer to clear the ship's paths. And when I talk about how different a vibe this film has, I'm actually referring to scenes like this one between Luke and his co-pilot. As they're leaving, they're asking each other how they are, and his co-pilot says, Right now I feel like I can take on the whole Empire myself. And Luke just responds, I know what you mean. Again, just a fun bit of dialogue that makes subtle reference to that first movie. And he does everything but wear a red shirt. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's orange. We then cut to, okay... Boys, is it safe to call this battle scene on Hoth the battle highlight, not only of this film, but the entire series? If if not the absolute best, damn near. Second best at minimum. I would say in the sense of vehicular battle, yes. Because I sort of have to put lightsaber battles in their own camp. But as far as putting the war in Star Wars, I don't think there's many better than this. 
Oh, I completely agree with you. Lightsaber battles are its own thing. The battle on Hoth theme, the tripping of the walkers, the way these walkers look like evil dogs just hulking around, taking out speeders. Just great stuff going on here. And again, this wouldn't be as hard to put together had they been in the dark black reaches of space and could hide the lines. But this took extra effort by everyone, and I'm sure all of them were cursing this script for doing so. But it just comes off as amazing. They trip up a walker by pretty much tying its shoelaces together, and then Luke gets shot down. Funny story that this scene of him putting a grenade in the walker was filmed the same day Mark Hamill's wife had a baby. (laughs) So he flew in just to do this scene after being there to see his son being born, and proceeded to break his hands while filming it because of how tired he was. (laughs) Meanwhile... Princess Leia decides, fuck this, and starts making plans to evacuate on her transport. But the way to the ship is taking out and blocked, God forbid, so Han has no choice but to take her out on the Falcon. Of course, all of this is happening as Vader himself arrives with a garrison of troops to, I assume, find Luke, but they find the Falcon instead. And in another funny story, when these troops and David Prowse as Vader enter this hangar the first time, one of the troops tripped, making everyone, including big-ass David Prowse, fall along with him. (laughs) (laughs) Despite the troops' effort in taking out the Falcon, it gets away. And one thing I will never forget about this scene is I used to have the book and record to this movie, which I actually listened to again on YouTube for this podcast. And there's a lot of context given to it because after the narrator details that the Falcon gets away, we hear the actor who is trying his best to do a James Earl Jones impression just softly say, I want that ship, implying he knows that if he gets his hand on the Falcon... To be able to get Skywalker as well. But I found it weird that Vader would come here with his troops. Like, why wouldn't you send the troops to do that? Why do you have to be there? Unless it is to actually get his hands on Luke. Because uh, that black suit looks awesome on the white snow. <laughs> That's a good point, too. <laughs> Except when he puts his hands on his hips later, which is fucking ridiculous. Yeah, put your hand up on my hip. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it looks awesome. I mean, I do think it's... I've always been bothered because I think that the design that they give for the snow troopers to me, goes a little too KKK-looking. Oh, like, yeah. so much that it's almost unnerving. But, but I, I, I slept it. I slept, yeah. Yeah. I do love that every style of Stormtrooper's got just a slight... I don't like it as a collector of figures and toys, but as a movie fan, <laughs> I love that every style of Trooper's got a slight variation designed for where they're going. But Vader, in that black outfit, marching through, looks absolutely just intense and imposing as all shit. Oh, yeah, with those buttons on him, too. The way they're just glowing and he's going through the white. Yeah, I completely agree with you. Goudreau, you gave out a huge sigh, sir. You're not a fan of this. Well, there's a question that Adam opened up, and I just have to follow up, because we talk about why didn't they just do this with Star Wars. As we'll find out with Darth Vader later on, he has the ability to stop a moving starship with his hand. Uh Uh-huh. So why doesn't he stop the Falcon here? yeah, don't don't get me started on that continuity. I know, but it's one of the problems of Star Wars where Darth Vader has become so powerful since these movies that it retroactively makes you question the scale when you go back because it doesn't seem consistent. Yep, very much so. I have a whole rant already prepared for when we get to fucking Rogue One, so don't get me started <laughs> now on that. So as the Falcon escapes, Luke is walking and sees it go. And this is important because it explains why, instead of spending his time trying to rescue them, Luke knows that his friends got away. And in another storybook I had details this because it explains Luke's thoughts as, at least Han and Leia are safe. Knowing that his friends are safe, he gets in the X-Wing with R2, and they do what Ben says, which is head to the Dagobah system. So R2 is being extra chatty on this ship, asking what's wrong, as well as asking why they're not regrouping with the others. And now we're off and running, and our three main characters from the first film are off on their own adventures. 
Matt, did you find this to be a good idea to kind of set them off on their own path? Yes and no, because I, while I really resonate with the Han and Leia stuff, it's the Luke subplot that I could give two shits about. Wow. Wow, as a kid, that's the stuff I gravitated to. It's interesting because, I mean, it's it's just not the type of thing that you do is, you know, split up your threesome, your, your group. I think it works for the story they're trying to tell, but I follow one of these stories much more so than the other, and we'll start discussing that here shortly. But part of this I'm into, part of it I'm not, and it's one more thing that so many movies since try to do. I don't think it's ever really done well by anybody. We cut to the Falcon fleeing TIE fighters and Star Destroyers, and a set of shots they released for magazines and articles that I catch glimpses of and get ultra excited about. And of course, in a running joke, the Falcon is proving to be incapable of going into hyperspace. Again. So what's Han doing? He's fixing the ship. <laughs> but as he does so, he feels rocks plummeting into his ship. As a last resort, he leads the Falcon right into an asteroid field. And you talk about a fun scene. Oh, I love this asteroid chase. I love the way the Falcon's zooming past ships. And I also have to say this. This film is absolutely gorgeous. Between 1977 and the filming of this movie, a ton of strides have taken place. And there are three instances, three shots I'm going to detail that I've always wanted as paintings. One of them happens here as the Falcon is fleeing TIE fighters through these rocks. And there's a far shot of ships just shooting at it and the lasers just light up the rocks that they're heading into. Just an amazing shot that, again, I've always remembered. Not to mention, this is just an exciting scene. And it once again just proves how good of a pilot Han truly is. And with William's score accompaniment, this is just proving to be fun stuff. It's amazing. It's shot so well. It is energetic. It's fun. And the music thumping through. But just the way that the Falcon is twisting and turning, sliding in and out, it's amazingly well done. Yeah, you mentioned the, or at least I did early on, the collaboration. The cinematographer of this film is David Butcher-Szczynski, who I know because he was David Cronenberg's regular DP for a long time. And a lot of his stuff is all about reflections and shadow, which are personified here in space because it's all black and they're flying through gray asteroids. So it's a challenge for a DP, but I think it's done very well. Interesting that that was Cronenberg's guy. I didn't realize that. We'll talk about Cronenberg next week. Oh, God. Very briefly. Meanwhile, Luke crash lands on Dagobah, and in a scene filmed outside in George Lucas' swimming pool, R2 gets eaten by and then spit out by a monster. Now, this was an interesting shoot for Hamill. He worked out really hard for it because of the training scenes as well as the fight scene coming up. But on this set, with the exception of this little Muppet, who we'll meet here in a little bit, he was all alone. Hamill has said that he felt really isolated here. And frustrated because, again, this was a truly awful set to be on. And his only solace was this puppet. And I I think given that context, Hamill is pretty good here, or at least much better than last week. He does what he can. He does what's expected of him. I don't envy somebody having to spend the majority of their time without other actors really play on. I mean, I don't mean that with any disrespect to Frank Oz, who did the work of Yoda is superb. But I don't like Dagobah. I don't like the swamp. I don't like the scenes. I could use about 80% less as soon as we start descending into this damn swamp. See, you guys are killing me here because if they hadn't done this, if he hadn't learned the ways here, then if he uses the force later, it's looked at as, oh, he just learned that automatically. But if we show the scenes, he's being looked at as, oh, these scenes suck, they drag on. What's the middle ground here? Doing it well? I don't don't know. It's just... (laughs) 
even the cave scene. I get it. I understand the metaphor. It's a powerful metaphor. I get it. I can't stand the way that it's done. Parts of the moments with Yoda, parts of them I really, really like. Maybe it's because it's so inconsistent with how it's delivered, how it's edited together. I like it at the beginning, but every time we go back to Dagobah, I'm just like, oh my god, can we get off this little swamp planet, please? I like the introduction of Yoda. I like visiting his hut for the first time. I feel about Dagobah like about Tatooine. I just, I don't need it. I don't want it anymore. <laughs> Some planets I don't need to revisit, and Dagobah's one of them. Wow. Goudreau, I'm assuming you're in full agreement here. Yeah, Adam, I love you so much because I feel like you telepathically read my mind because Dagobah has been the one constant in my disdain is too strong a word, but it's the reason why I don't consider this my favorite Star Wars film. I think from a narrative perspective, what is accomplished here with Luke specifically is good. It's the roadmap they chose to get there. Between the setting, I think sometimes they're too on the nose with their (laughs) forcing metaphors. No pun intended. I guess fully intended. But it's also the thing of, by this point, I get the sense that there are certain parts of the movie where they're more so focused on setting up the third movie than finishing up what they have here. Because what happens with Yoda is not ultimately resolved. There is more to learn. So as a result, it kind of feels incomplete. And there's a part of me that understands why they did that. But also, it establishes one of my problems is the Force is still too vague for me. The stuff that Yoda teaches him is more so about the physical aspects. Moving stuff and, you know, your inner strength. Not necessarily how the Force channeled or, or or what have you. So yeah, I'm with I'm with Adam where Dagobah is I guess the galactic basic translation is Nyquil because there's parts of it where I want to take a nap. I do love how R2 is spit out by the creature and as <laughs> Luke tends to his wounds, he says that he must be going crazy and as an exclamation point, R2 just spits out gobs of muddy water. <laughs> Funny stuff. Everyone who's been hung over knows that that feels like <laughs> We cut to Vader in a shot that, as a kid, fascinated the hell out of me. For the first time, we are getting a glimpse of what's underneath the helmet as Admiral Piet walks in on it slowly being lowered on his head. Oh, my God. As a kid, I would fucking slow motion this. I'm like, what the hell's going on here? This is the type of thing that makes him feel more fearsome. Yeah. There's just something eerie about And the sound. Oh, my God. Mm. The Foley work and sound editing and design is so superb. Even just the sound of that helmet going on is still, Mm. I can hear it with Without hearing it, it's perfect for what it is. Ben Burt is as important to this movie as in series as anyone is. I agree with that. There's also even with that, there's still enough restraint to where you don't see his face. Exactly. Vader says that asteroids are of no concern to him, and he wants that ship. No questions asked. We cut back to the Falcon as three Peel makes the brilliant deduction that the rock they're on isn't entirely stable. And Han is told by Leia to let her go, as being held by him isn't nearly enough to get her excited. (laughs) We cut back to Dagobah, as Luke charges R2 up, then makes the interesting statement that there's something familiar about this place. And as he mentions that it feels like they're being watched, here's Yoda in the amphibious flesh. few things before I get both your opinions on this character. One, John Williams makes the interesting choice to not accompany this scene with music. So when he's going through Luke's stuff and looking at a flashlight, we don't really know how to feel. Who's this little thing that looks like he's on drugs going through (laughs) Luke's stuff here? And two, Lucas originally wanted his friend Jim Henson to play this character. 
But Henson was busy directing his own movie, the Muppet movie, and couldn't get over to help him. So he recommended Grover, a.k.a. Frank Oz, for the part. This was a ballsy move to make a character like this into a non-sentient puppet, because if it failed, the movie and Luke's journey, which, let's face it, to me is the crux of the mythology that they're building here, is for naught. And once Yoda gives this test of Luke's patience, and Luke frankly fails miserably at it, Yoda has proven to be a wise character, and the way he ends this scene is so telling, as Luke exclaims that he won't fail Yoda because he's not afraid, but Yoda just looks at him very cold and ominously and simply says, You will be. Boys, how do we feel about Yoda? As a design, as a performance, he is one of the most memorable parts of Star Wars for me. And it's still to this day why I always champion the practical components, because as an actor, it's something you can physically play off and respond to. I, I think he's great. I love how he's fucking with Luke, where he is just acting like a wild animal, going through his stuff, and there's that moment of realization for Luke where he realizes that this is a wise old teacher. All that stuff's great. As far as Yoda goes, I don't have a lot of complaints outside of the whole, well, why didn't you tell me that Darth Vader was my father? Much like Matt said, I think he's designed amazingly well. He's puppeted just fantastic. The voice is, is great, but I also love Grover. <laughs> there's, a lot of, <laughs> there's a lot of Grover in that performance. But I think Yoda is is done fantastically well. And much like Matthew said, him playing around and digging through the stuff and fighting with R2 about the light. Mike! 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 Like, like <laughs> that's good stuff. The revelation with Luke is just like, oh. I mean, there is some really good stuff in there. Absolutely. And this reveal is probably the best part of it. Even just the, oh, Yoda, you seek Yoda. <laughs> There's a delightful part to it before, much like the Force itself, it goes down a dark path. You know, Yoda is starts out very light before you realize maybe how much of a dark, tortured soul he really is. And Matt, to go back on your point, I think that revelation would have been made eventually had he stuck around for the training. But the fact that he jetted off meant that it just threw a wrench in everything. So we see 3PO tell Han that he needs to replace a power coupling, and then Han goes to Chewie trying to be discreet about the fact that 3PO pointed out something that he didn't actually know. (laughs) We then see the heart of the movie, which is the relationship of Han and Leia blooming. As a kid, I fucking hated this scene. <laughs> but as an adult, again, the actors are delivering the dialogue in a very believable way. And I love the Kirshner edition of making C-3PO be the ultimate cock block as he walks in while they kiss. This is just a great scene. It's wonderful you believe it between these two. I think this is why every young boy growing up at that age thinks it's cool and wants to be the scoundrel because it's Han Solo slash Indiana Jones fully realized right here. And the relationship, the love theme that Williams brings into it between these two, it's so perfectly done for what this movie needs. And I mean, who's expecting a love story in the middle of this? We had a little bit of the flirtation and stuff last time, but they fully go for it here and it truly works. I have my own dark side of the moon here. This is the point in Star Wars where this franchise shifted from space fantasy to a soap opera. From here on out, all these movies are set on to a point is revelations about who is related, related to who slash who is in love with who. Not saying that's a bad thing, but for me personally, that's a part of Star Wars I don't care about. This is where everything starts to feel, for a galaxy far, far away, feels a little bit shrunken down. Nowhere near as bad as it's going to be, but I think this is the template for the idea of everyone's related to somebody or I'm doing this because I I love somebody. Like I said, it's gone from the political and the battlefields to the personal. That's my take, and I'm sticking with it. 
Wow, you must love the Phantom Menace then, because they go way political in that one. <laughs> there is that thing you know, too much of a good thing. <laughs> I have to be more on Adam's side on this, because you saw this flirtation in that first movie. It was just more confrontational. All good relationships start off like that. It's very weird, but I do think the way they pull the trigger on this is... At first subtle, but then they go full throttle with this scene here. I, I'm more on Adam's side on this where I think it's just very well done and it makes you really like these characters. And it has nothing to do with the result of this relationship, which we'll talk about by the end of the year. Meanwhile, Vader is insisting on more sweeping of the asteroid field as he gets word that the Emperor would like to talk to him. Okay, let's talk about this scene of Vader and Palpatine. When they originally filmed this scene, they really had no idea how the Emperor would look. So they took Rick Baker's wife. Yes. Makeup artist Rick Baker, they took his wife, put a mask with a protruding slug on his face to stand while an actor by the name of Clev Ravel spoke the words. And it was basically the Emperor telling him that there is a new threat by the name of Skywalker, and Vader responds that he's just a boy, but if he turns him, he could be a powerful ally. And it includes with Vader saying that he will join us or die. By 2004, they were in the midst of filming prequels, and Lucas wanted that continuity. So... He took Ian McDermott in full Palpatine makeup and had him film this real elongated version of the scene, which works in context of the entire saga that Lucas created and removed kind of the ominous way the final twist kind of sneaks up on you in this. As soon as that scene was over on the Blu-ray, I paused it and then I went on YouTube and there's a scene that I'm talking about, the original Emperor scene is there, and it's definitely a different feel but again i think lucas had the assumption that since everybody knows that luke's his father we're not going to play with this suspense anymore we're just going to make it a more of a uh, continuity of the saga adam you have probably seen both scenes what do you think about the way this scene is portrayed both then and now i think that redoing this with ian mcdermott shows that lucas sometimes gets his head up his own ass doesn't realize that some things worked really well don't need to be changed and i can't stand seeing Ian McDermott there as Emperor, because I think the original one, there was just something creepy and eerie about it that I really liked as a child and teenager, and it just made the Emperor feel so much more otherworldly and evil. And I think that completely disappears by making it the way that he redid for the film. Goudreau, have you seen that first version of this? Yeah, I have. I think the one thing that really creeps it out is that they use chimpanzee eyes. Mm-hmm. which yeah. I think really makes that off-worldly unsettlingness of that scene. But I'm also someone who believes in continuity, and I, I think there is a logical reason to put Ian McDermott's Palpatine in that scene for that reason. So that part doesn't bother me. What does bother me is the way that scene is expanded upon, where because it's so well-known, they don't feel the need to really dance around it. It's heavily inferred. There's also that line about, Vader says, I don't know if this is in the original version where he says, like, Obi-Wan can no longer help him, which, you know, if you know their relationship, you know that he was his former master, so he knows that relationship. I'm fine with both. From a design standpoint, I love that original look in the Emperor, but it also, retroactively, regardless of which one, kind of removes some of the mystique of the build-up to Palpatine in Return of the Jedi, because we've already Mm -hmm. seen him. Because the way Return of the Jedi opens, we'll talk about this next week, they talk about him like we've never seen him before. So that that's kind of a problem I have. 
But I'm okay with it. This is sort of the equivalent of if they did... Not saying I want this, please. <laughs> Careful. If you went back in Sorcerer's Stone and put Ray Fiennes in his Voldemort in the back of Quirrell's head just for the sake of continuity, mm-hmm. I get why you do it. So for the record, everybody, when that inevitably happens, it's not my fault. <laughs> yep. I'm almost <laughs> surprised they haven't at this point. I am too, actually, now that you mention it. I love how the next shot is of the Star Destroyer taking out asteroids as bombers are throwing down flash bombs, trying to find the Falcon. Tie bombers. How awesome is it to see a new level of ship? Yeah. I don't know what it is. The tie bombers, I always thought were hella cool. All the tie fleet, whether it's an interceptor, whether it's the original twin ion engine or the bombers. It was just cool seeing a different ship. No explanation. It's just, it's in here doing what's got to get done. These things are cool. It's in here doing what's got to get done, which is a kid's going to leave saying, Mommy, I want one of those, and then they go to Toys R Us and get one. <laughs> yep. <laughs> which I'm not going to say either happened or didn't happen when I was a child. <laughs> but these bombers are going to have a hard time finding this falcon as it's in the belly of a beast full of Minox. This is a fun scene. I love how Han shoots the ground and pisses it off as they take off. And Han knows that they're not in a cave, but this creature's mouth. And a shot of them flying through the teeth is just space adventure fun. Yet another toy I saw advertised and really, really wanted was this fucking slug. It's weird. Sometimes, and, and it totally depends on mood, sometimes I'm like, uh, really, do we need this? Yeah, we do. And it's the reason that you said it's space fun. You don't expect to see it. I don't like the, everything that happens while they're in the cave, quote-unquote, mouth of this thing. But the escape, flying through, having to turn on your axis to go through the teeth, that's just awesome. This is the condensed version of that movie Pitch Black with Vin Diesel. (laughs) We go back to Dagobah with Luke really training with this little Muppet on his back. And another weird addition happens here where in a bit of ADR added for the special edition, Yoda just yells, run, as Luke hops over a log. Yoda assures Luke that the dark side is not stronger, but it is easier and more seductive. And then tells Luke that there is no why and instructs him to clear his mind of questions. But as Luke settles in, he feels cold, like something is just not right. And this scene of him going into this magic tree, that's what the track is called in William's score, so that's what I'm calling it here. It's something you just never expect to see in a Star Wars movie. Matt, you mentioned Cronenberg. Like, this seems like it would be in, like, a Cronenberg film. It's something more from a horror film as Luke walks in, weapons in hand. And I'll get to that point here in a bit, but as he walks in, he finds Vader who just emerges out of the shadows and looks like he is a shadow. And at one point, it is only his breathing that makes up the dead air. Luke fights him off, the helmet explodes, and in that helmet is a portrait of his own face, meaning that he is not ready. A couple things here before I throw it to you two. First of all, I remember being on the playground and all of us kids debating whether it was Luke's face or maybe the face of his father to tell him that Vader is indeed his father before Luke goes and confronts him. But that's, of course, not true. In my eyes, what this is is Yoda once again testing his pupil. And it is an old Eastern philosophy of if you go somewhere looking for trouble, you're going to find it. So Luke goes in, weapons in hand, and it is, in fact, this fact which causes who he knows killed Kenobi to return, and the result is a dose of reality. I conclude this because if you look at Yoda's face as Luke walks in, he's like, damn kid, still isn't listening, and he's going to get himself killed. Boys, we kind of know where Adam falls on this scene, which really surprises me, actually. Do you agree with that interpretation before we get to the opinion of it? It's a valid interpretation because it ties into, you know, the Kurosawa influence of the previous movie. But again, I also think... It is the whole thing of don't be afraid of fighting the thing unless you're prepared to become that thing yourself. And it is also, once again, telegraphing that 
Darth Vader is his father to a point. So again, not just the fact that I knew that before watching the movie. It really should not have been as much of a shock as it was. <laughs> oh boy, was it a shock to me. It's weird. I find this scene... It's not... The, see, I don't think that it's Yoda setting up any type of test whatsoever. I think it's always been that this is some dark side presence that has been here on Dagobah, and that because you have the light side, you must have the dark side. But the more that Star Wars and current Star Wars has decided to destroy their own canon, I feel like that's kind of gone away, and this scene has meant less and less. But that it never feels followed through with, it never feels fleshed out. Luke never takes this literal face value of what could happen, and I think dissects it in a way that is explained. You know, it's the, oh, look, you're going to become your father if you go down this path. Well, that's one way to look at it, but because this film isn't interested in dissecting the themes here on Dagobah and really breaking them out, it's incomplete with the rest of everything that is going on. Because at this point in his training, this just doesn't make sense that he would get the lesson out of this that he would need to. It just happens, and they move on to the next exercise. Yeah, there's a, well, you don't know that. It cuts away after this. It, you don't know if they discuss it or it, not. It, you know what? You're right. With what they give me on screen, it's never discussed in this. I'm surprised at some point that Disney hasn't commissioned a freaking dark, dark tree cave book. <laughs> you know, to just, to just, it's going to be a series on Disney Plus, maybe. But to me, it just feels incomplete. Like, there is a brilliant idea here that gives dropped so freaking quickly that it's disappointing. We cut back to the Superstar Destroyer where Vader has assembled a whole gang of bounty hunters set to go after Han. We have Bosk, IG-88, Forlom, and Zookus. Is there another? Oh yeah, this Boba Fett character. Now, long-time Star Wars fans know that this is not the first time that Boba Fett has been introduced in Star Wars. He was a part of the thing I'm going to get these two high and watch with, which is the Star Wars Holiday Special. He was a part of the, the animated portion of that special, and Lucas liked him so much that he put him in here. He has, I think, four or five lines in this entire film. He dies in a hilarious way next week, and Lucas brings him back in Attack of the Clones. I think he serves a great purpose here, but the fact that the cult of Papa Fett grew as it did just truly fucking bothers me. And one of my best friends is just like a hardcore Boba Fett fan, and I, I am not a fan of this character as much as people are, but maybe I'm just not a fan of the cult. He's fine, but that's the, about where I leave it. Like, I think he's got, like, so many of the Star Wars characters. Like, he's got a cool look. There was a book series that came out, Expanded Universe pre-Disney, that I thought was pretty dang well done. It's always bothered me that they've considered him alive after going in the Sarlacc pit. Tell you what. As far as I'm concerned, Boba Fett's dead. But, yeah, he's fine. He, I think he's really a cool character in this movie. And that's about the only time I think Boba Fett's a cool character. And you don't know it. In the, in the holiday special, spoiler, I think Boba Fett's pretty cool in that holiday special. But they're in this, and I think that's kind of it. Leave Boba Fett alone. Let him die. Please. This is one of those religions I have never understood, the cult of Boba Fett. You know why I like him in this movie? Says three sentences is important to the plot and get the fuck out of the way to let the more important characters <laughs> deal with the resolution. <laughs> I think every time they have tried to double down on Boba Fett, it has gotten worse and worse for the franchise because that TV show, that was the Star Wars equivalent of Iron Fist, where I felt they bottomed out 
and there's nowhere to go but up in their television world. Another thing I don't like is Lucas and his goddamn continuity. For the special edition, he took the original voice of this character, which is precise and to the point with a hint of conviction, and replaced it with that of Boba Fett from Attack of the Clones, the bland as all bland can be, Tamora Morrison. Ugh, I can't stand Tamora Morrison's voice. And as the I can't Boba either. Fett. Great, he worked in Aquaman as Jason Momoa's drunk fisherman dad, lighthouse keeper. But he is not cool enough to be Boba Fett or Jango Fett, for that matter. He just isn't. And I love that voice from the first edition. Yeah. Like, that, that first voice was just amazing. And, like I said, precise. And tomorrow Morrison just, ah, uh, we'll, we'll get to it that. It doesn't sound like months. a calm, cool, calculated bounty hunter. So Vader has all these guys gathered to be sent on a hunt for the Falcon. And he tells Fett, convincingly, no disintegrations. <laughs> but... All this is for naught as the Star Destroyer finds the Falcon. They're in pursuit as they exit the asteroid field, and we see that the hyperdrive is, once again, not working. After throwing a fit and having the rear deflector shield destroyed, Han takes the ship and puts all the pressure on the front shield. He moves it into attack position and then disappears from the Star Destroyer scopes. And I love the look on Nita's face when he tells his crew that he will take the heat and tell Lord <laughs> Vader that they lost the ship. The look on his eyes is like, yeah, I'm fucked. <laughs> We cut to Luke on one hand moving rocks, but R2 cannot stop chirping at the fact that the X-Wing has sunk to the bottom of the swamp. All this causes Luke to fall, and he unsuccessfully tries getting it out by doing or doing not, as there is no try. But he can't, and the look on Yoda's face as Luke gets up to the surface is classic. He's like, this kid might do it. His eyes perk up, his ears go up, like he's looking like, oh my god, he's going to do it, he's going to do it. But when Luke can't, Yoda goes and proves his point that size matters not. And he lifts it himself. And when Luke says he can't believe it, Yoda gives even more wisdom by saying, that is why you failed. Again, these scenes are poignant to me. I don't know why you guys are not on board with these. This scene, good little scene. It's a nice one towards the end of it when it's done. I think it's vastly inconsistent, unfortunately, but Yoda lifting the X-Wing out of the swamp, I have a model of that one with the foliage hanging off of it, and it's brilliantly done. Yeah. I think Williams is the best actor in this scene, because I think Williams brings the emotion more than anything else. Yeah, scenes like this are in short supply. Okay, so you guys like this one, then? Yeah. yeah. Okay. I don't hate all of Dagobah, just a lot of it. I would get a hotel there at most. I wouldn't buy a house. We go back up into space, where Vader has had enough of Nita's excuses and kills him right there. And I love the dark comedy of him calling guards over to carry the body away. <laughs> Funny stuff here. Vader is pissed that Admiral Piet has still not found the Falcon, and he tells him to not fail him again. Meanwhile, we cut to the Falcon, which is hiding right by the place the Star Destroyer dumps its garbage. And I love this because people forget that Han actually used to work for the Empire. Mm -hmm. So the way he'd be familiar with this procedure is... It was probably his job to make sure it got done. They decide to take flight toward, not the Lando system, but Cloud City, where Han's old buddy Lando is taking refuge. The plan would have worked, too, but there's that cagey bounty hunter Fett to spot them and spoil their plans. I do love this, though. Han's thinking they got away, but nope, Fett's is there waiting. I think it's fantastic. You know, it's a, it's a great little clever move to do what he did and to get away. And if you're not paying attention, you might not even realize that Fett's ship is also the Slave One is going behind as well. Like, if you blink, you mm -hmm. miss that he's following them. For what they did do with Boba Fett, I kind of wish the other bounty hunters had more scenes. Because he's the only one that seems competent by this logic. <laughs> yeah. You got Bosk, you got IG-88, which are both characters they do some stuff with and some of the extended continuity. But... They get the job offer, and we don't see them do anything. It's just full of that. 
We then see Luke get more advanced in his training as he floats not just rocks this time, but a few boxes and even R2. But what he sees while he's in this position is his friends in pain. And this once again causes him to lose concentration, making R2's set of days on this mud planet even worse as he falls and he falls hard. Yoda assures him that what he saw is a blurred vision and the truth behind it is hard to see. He then tells Luke that if he were to leave now and abandon his training, he would put all for what they have fought and suffered for in danger. Meanwhile, Han is having a hard time convincing Cloud City officials that he is Lando's friend. And if there is one thing the Empire Strikes Back Special Edition really concentrated on, it's this portion of the film. Mm -hmm. The effects for Cloud City in the original release weren't terrible, but they didn't really stand out. Plus, it was very much kept in the dark what was going on outside those windows. Here, they did a lot of touch-up work on the outside of the city's windows, so you know that there's always something going on. Now, I'm not sure if this is better per se, but it is a more enhanced version of what Bespin was supposed to be, given what Ralph McQuarrie envisioned it as. I will say, I always thought that this looked so much better, was so vast and open, and I really liked seeing it all. However, maybe it's the quality that Disney Plus streams at because that's the version that i watched to take my notes on but i was really let down by the quality watching them at home this week of the scenes that they added and the new vistas and things like that because i remember them looking really good really impressive and thinking it was a great choice and watching it this time i was extremely let down so maybe it's just disney plus deciding that they were going to lower quality of their stream but it looked like poorly done matte paintings and that's not something that i remember them looking like originally yeah it is very disappointing that depending on what media you're watching these on the differences become much more apparent because even i have the blu-rays and you can see some of the scenes that were repurposed later don't look as polished as the rest of the movie does they land and they are greeted by lando but Lando is not alone. He's accompanied by some guards, as well as some Colt 45. <laughs> and uh, we hear that this was all a prank, and Lando starts hugging him and saying how happy he is to see him. So let's talk about this character. I, I think he brings a lot of energy to this film. All positive, and Billy Dee Williams is pretty fantastic in this movie. And, of course, he has proof that, yeah, there are black people in space. Um, Goudreau, what do you think of Lando in this movie? So I like the setup. We know Han Solo is a scumbag. And even he's like, I don't trust this guy completely. <laughs> but I also love that. What is the first thing he does as soon as he gets off the Falcon and Lando walks up? He tries to make a move on Leia. <laughs> <laughs> and Leia does not like him. It's not because she's racist. There is a fun fact. Lucas originally came up with his idea of the Clone Wars. Lando was going to be a clone. And that's why she was prejudiced against him. But that obviously never made it to the finished product. Because Lucas had talked about making part of this movie about the Clone Wars was that cloning was it was something you could buy on the black market, no pun intended. And all of the crime lords and the people who could afford it were cloning themselves. Jedi were cloning themselves. But the clones went crazy. So you had a war come out. And it was going to be revealed that Lando was a clone of like the original proprietor of Cloud City. But for numerous reasons, I'm glad that never made it to the screen. But I, I like Billy DeWims. He brings a good energy. But, but man, all I can think of is, God, he's doing everything in his power to try to get with Leia. <laughs> I freaking love Lando Calrissian. Love the character. I think Billy D. Williams is amazing in it. I think he brings a charm. And just that 
you could see that he and Lando, or he and Han, would have been up to the same kind of shenanigans, but also because of that would have, like, competed for the same women or things like that. It feels like these two were brother-in-arms that also could have gotten in trouble because of that very same thing. It's Yeah, there's always been something great about Lando. Billy Dee plays it so freaking well and fun. Some of my favorite Expanded Universe book series is the Young Han Solo Chronicles. The proper telling of Young Han Solo, where we actually get him to meet Lando, and they have adventures together, and when he meets Chewbacca. And those trilogy of books... I think flesh out this character amazingly well and their relationship even better. You mean the non-canon books? Those? Should bite me. <laughs> I don't even know what I don't even know what the fuck is canon anymore. Ugh. I know. It's hard to know anymore. C-3PO gets distracted by what he hears as another R2 unit, and when he goes to investigate, he gets blown to smithereens by a factory worker, which is where Chewie finds him. We cut back to Luke, who has made the decision to go help his friends. Guinness, giving the performance at his asking price of box office points is allowing him to, begs the boy to have patience, but all of this is to no avail as Luke takes off. We then get a conversation that has been, oh, so debated since this movie came out. So, as Luke takes off... Kenobi says, that boy is our last hope. And Yoda responds with, no, there is another. People who watched next week's movie obviously thought this was a reference to Leia. But I did some digging on this, and I listened to a few interviews with Lucas, Uh where he specifically states he had this line uttered because he wanted the audience to think that Luke could die. Now, there was a sister written for this script, but it was not, in fact, Leia. Just somebody who we actually never ended up meeting. And it was only while breaking down the Jedi script that Lucas realized he needed to wrap up the story of these two and not get distracted by another Jedi training and being Luke's sister. So he just ended up making it Leia. But that is why he had this line written, was to make it look like Luke could die. And if you look at that with that logic, I can understand it. As a kid, obviously, I, there was no way I could even process this. But Adam, what do you think about that idea? I've heard that, and it makes sense. I've also heard that there was an idea to have the other that there was just going to be another one out there in the galaxy that could be another savior, but it was done so that audiences could feel that their hero would be in danger because Lucas, being a fan of how these things generally were, knew that your hero was never going to die, and he felt that the audience needed to feel that he could. And I don't disagree with him in that aspect. I don't think I ever felt that Luke was going to die, but I think it's a good impulse on his part. I don't know what to believe. I think it depends on what you're looking for. But you're right that, you know, I don't believe anyone's going to die or will stay dead. I mean, look what happens to Han between this movie and the next one. I never read it as definitively Leia. I I thought it was the whole thing of sort of Peter Pan syndrome of putting yourself that you can be that person for for the part of the audience. But again, Obi-Wan is doing everything to bite his tongue. When he's saying, like, look, I don't want to lose you the same way I lost Darth Vader. He's so close to saying, look, I fucking killed your father, okay? (laughs) (laughs) Stop looking at me like that. Although at this point, he knows that Darth Vader and Anakin are the same person, as we have found out in the Obi-Wan show. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) To be fair, that is the one question the prequels don't answer is he doesn't know that they're the same person. Then these movies don't make that clear until Jedi, where because it's PG, Luke should say, what the fuck? (laughs) We cut back to Cloud City as Han and Leia are getting ready for a special dinner, but Leia is not feeling it. She's scared that she hasn't seen 3PO for hours, and she doesn't trust Lando at all. She also says that she knows when Han gets the ship fixed that Han is as good as gone. 
Meanwhile, Chewie finds 3PO and gets to work on repairing him. And then in comes Lando, who tells Leia that she's so beautiful that she belongs up here in the clouds. <laughs> Suave motherfucker this guy is. I'm sure there's some Colt 45 in that dip. <laughs> they make some small talk until they get to the dining hall, where well, the table is headed by Darth Vader himself. Damn it, laws. And I re- <laughs> <laughs> Showing up when you least expect it. <laughs> I remember my storybook had this scene of Han shooting at Vader and Vader simply raising his hand to deflect the lasers, and it really bothered me as a kid. Really? Vader says that, yeah, Vader says that he would be honored if they would join him, and troops and Boba Fett himself surround them, and Lando says that he had no choice as the Empire arrived before they did. And what I love about Ford's performance here is that he conveys that he isn't mad at Lando for what he did. In fact, he knows that if he were put in the same spot, he would more than likely have done the same exact thing. And I also love Chewie in this scene, because very rarely do we hear the angry growl that he has. That roar is But when that door opens, oh, when that door opens, it is in full force. And we'll hear it again by the end of this, but when Lando gives his exclamation, Chewie gives him a look like, you fucking asshole. I really do like this scene. It, It really does get me. Well, it's good that there's never... A hint of the Empire already being there. So it does come off as actually surprising. Yeah, I, I dig this huge. It's such, as Matt said, it's such a surprise because you don't expect it. There's no way it's going to happen like this. And just everything happening at one chance, you know, Han's eyes going bug-eyed wise, that chewy lion roar, and Han whipping out his blaster, you know, shooting his future father-in-law in the chest to no effect. It's a great scene. It's really well done. And this went from a calm, cool, collected, where you knew everything wasn't necessarily okay. You know, C-3PO was getting jacked up and another unnecessary distraction by some ugnots. Like, but this scene really just amped everything up here going into the final act. We see Chewie just losing it as alarms are going off in Cloud City, and he looks at 3PO, who is a bundle of parts. He's just so sad here as he's processing what's going on. We cut to Han, who is also not in a good way as he's being lowered for carbonite tests. When Vader emerges, he reassesses that the Wookiee and Princess must never again leave Cloud City. And Lando knows, while the deal is getting terrible, it was literally the only thing he could do. Chewbacca is called a flea-bitten furball by 3PO as Leia comes in. And one thing about this movie is the title is appropriate. We'll talk about what happens with Luke here in a minute. But all of these characters are literally beaten down by the end of it, aren't they, boys? Every single one, yep. Goudreau? Except for R2. He's the only one that comes out unscathed. <laughs> well, fuck, he went through a goddamn monster and got spit out. <laughs> you know, he, well, that's what I'm saying. He did his time already. <laughs> <laughs> he had to go to Dagobah me and Matt. He was done. There you go. Leando comes into the room, and we once again hear the very pissed-off growl of Chewie as he breaks down that Vader has agreed to let Leia and Chewie stay at Bespin, and then assures them that Vader is not after them at all, but someone called Skywalker. I remember this scene vividly because when HBO was getting ready to launch this movie on their network with advertising weeks in advance, this was the scene they would play, and it once again got me so excited to watch this movie again. A scuffle between Han and Lando ensues, and I love Leia here when she's just like, you certainly have a way with people. (laughs) (laughs) We cut to the Carbonite Chamber set, and I didn't even have to read all accounts to know that this fucking set looks scorching hot. So everyone's brought in with 3PO doing a lot of jib-jabbering. And this scene here contains one of my favorite moments in all of cinema, honestly. Chewbacca has had enough. 
and he starts taking out a bunch of stormtroopers. Fett raises his gun to shoot him, but Vader takes his hand and lowers the weapon. Why? Did he not want his prize to jab it damaged? Or was he showing at least a little bit of heart by allowing Han and Leia to calm Chewie down? I love this scene. It's so subtle, but it's something I always remember going back and watching this film. It is. It's weird, though, because to me, it, it doesn't make any sense. And I know some people have now been like, oh, it's because he always knew that he was going to have... Had Anakin built three PO... No, he didn't. <laughs> no, just stop giving Lucas that much credit. It's a weird choice, though, and I don't dislike it. I just, I've just i never fully understood what it, what it goes for. I also love the look Fisher gives Vader here. Don't forget, this was the guy who held her as her home planet was destroyed. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what it is about these second films that brings out so much out of these actresses that were in their franchises, but like Margot Kidder a couple months ago in Superman 2, I think Fisher is excellent here, especially in the film's final act. So Chewbacca's finally calm, and in one of the most famous scenes in film history, it is in this precise moment that Leia professes her love for him, and Han, in one of the most masculine responses to that phrase ever, just responds with, I know. Now, famously, this scene was tough to shoot. In fact, all of the stuff here was tough to shoot because of how hot it was. And try as they might, they could not get Han to say I love you too as the script called for in a satisfying way. But the legend of this scene has been a little miffed because people think the line was improvised at the last second. As Kirshner said, they were only going to do one more take and call it a day. What actually happened was Ford took Kirshner aside and suggested that the line be I know. And that's how they shot it. And basically, the character was already very well liked before this moment. But if anything, this only made that love grow into legendary status for the character of Han Solo. Yeah, it's, it's that perfect little moment. It's a great, it's a scoundrel line said in love. And I think that completely encapsulates not just Han Solo, but their relationship. Yeah, I, I think that's a good summation of it. And hot take, I think this is the best case scenario for taking Han off the table completely. I've never liked the idea of him coming back from this. Well, his work is over. Yeah, neither did Ford, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> but besides that line, I love every single second of the scene. I love how Chewbacca is just heartbroken, seeing his friend get lowered down into this chamber. I love Leia's look as she sees him get lowered. And I love, love, love this score that just escalates as the scene escalates. And then we get a slight smile across Han's lips right before the steam arises and the freezing process begins. People love to talk about the action and science fiction aspect of these films. And all of that does work on a grand level. But a lot of times they fail to talk about the drama and human emotion behind Star Wars. How they work is definitely an up-and-down, case-by-case basis. <laughs> but here, every piece is perfectly filtered. And to me, this scene is just the epitome of great storytelling. And Matt, I'm sure you're going to disagree with that. Which part? <laughs> well, you said you don't like the soap opera aspect of it, but are you at least going with the emotion here? Oh yeah, I'm fine with this, because this implies that Han Solo is dead. Until there's that line, well, well did he survive? Yeah, he survived. I wish they cut that. Well, I don't think it's about whether he survived or not. It's about be him being taken to Jabba. Jabba wants him alive. Well, that, 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 that's, not, that's not soap opery. That's paying off something that was established in the previous movie. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. tying it back to the first movie. Yeah, but I guess what Vader's saying is he also, don't forget, this isn't just to get Han and Carbonite. This is a test to see if he can get Luke to the Emperor, too. This is how he planned on putting Luke in. So that's why he's following up on it was to see if whether he could put Luke in Carbonite as well. Yeah, it's a lot of effort that later on. He should have just said, hey, Luke, want to come with me? He doesn't try that approach. I mean, that's why Darth Vader sucks so much at his job. If you just communicate 
and talk to people rather than choke them out or pull out your lightsaber, maybe you get more accomplished. Parents need to learn how to talk to their children. That's the lesson of Star Wars. George? Adam, what do you think about the emotion of this scene? I think it's fantastic. Between the music swelling the way that Williams does so well, is it emotional manipulation? Sure. And I don't care because it's John Williams. Vader looking so arrogantly pleased with himself, Leia looking pained. But even that sorrowful roar from Chewie, just that, you know, that mournful one that he lets out. Anybody that's heard a cat howl when they're sad or a dog howl, like that's what that feels like right there. And, oh, man, it, it's just, it's the perfect cap on that emotional beat. Han is found to be alive, and Vader's satisfied as this sets up perfectly what he's going to do with Skywalker. This is also when Vader once again alters the deal and has Lando and his men take Leia and Chewie to a ship. We cut to Han being, well, not wheeled out, but led out of the chamber as Luke makes his way around the city. He's spotted, and when she sees him, Leia utters a phrase we'll be hearing again next week, which is, It's a trap! Oh my god. But Luke Luke follows his instincts and is sent down into the Cloud City melting chamber. And remember when I said there are three shots I want in painted form? Mm. This silhouette of Vader up on this pedestal waiting for Luke is the second shot I was talking about. Yeah. Just amazingly shot. He says, I've been waiting here for six goddamn hours. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly your droid sucks at navigation. In this suit, and I know in that, this hot chamber. Yeah, and I know that because he was once my droid. Yeah, right. All right, so here's Luke in for the fight of his life with the being he knows killed Kenobi, but has zero idea of his origin, and Vader at first is toying with him. He has one hand on a saber and simply deflecting until Luke is knocked into the chamber. But Luke, Luke emerges from the steam and hits Vader with his own. So he's trying to make it a fight. Boys, how do we feel about this? The second of nine lightsaber battles we're going to be talking about this year. I feel like this lightsaber must have been set for stun. (laughs) It's the only time somebody takes a shot from a lightsaber, and it's a glancing blow. I think it's a gigantic step up from the fight last week. As much as the last week, as important as it is, and in retrospect, it's the first one that we see. It's not a good fight. This one, at least... One, I love seeing Vader decide that he's going to fight one-handed because he thinks this kid is such a punk. I mean, there's something arrogantly beautiful about that that's just fitting. But it's not the best lightsaber battle. This isn't the best lightsaber battle living in this initial trilogy. But I think it's a giant step up in execution and quality. And we see that Luke is a much better swordsman than Obi-Wan was. He's got youth on his side. Yeah, I definitely like that Vader feels much more of a physical mismatch. Like th- this feels like those later Rocky movies where he he feels like the underdog, and I like the one-handed comment. I think that's also because Vader only has one functioning hand, technically. <laughs> that's a great point. Well, he puts his other hand on it later when Luke kind of does prove to be a threat. Yeah. I'm not going to say this is the best and it's certainly not the most emotional. Nope. We'll see that soon. But in my mind, it's second on both of those lists. And again, it's the escalation behind it. The way Kirshner films it, mm-hmm. the way William's score is, again, just completely enhancing it. This is a tremendously dramatic and exciting scene for me. When Vader puts both his hands on his lightsaber and sends Luke out the window using the equipment around him, it is at this point we realize that Luke really doesn't have a chance here, does he? <laughs> No. And Vader thinks it's a cakewalk because he knocks him into the smelting chamber and just goes, oh, that was too easy. 
Hmm? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I love the internal dialogue Vader has. <laughs> he's, again, like 3 pure. He's kind of doing a lot of chatting here. Meanwhile, while all of this is going on, Lando breaks Leia and Chewbacca free, and Chewbacca responds by, again, growling angrily and wrapping his hands around Lando's throat. And I love 3PO's response to this. He just says to Lando, he's terribly sorry about all this. <laughs> After all, he's only a Wookiee. <laughs> that line used to make my dad cackle. Captain Solo gets put in the cargo hold, and is in this sequence that I'll again point out how great Fisher is in this film. They get to the ship just a tad too late, and instead of lingering on Slave 1 taking off, Kirshner wisely just focuses on the emotion etched on Fisher's face as she watches it leave, along with the man that she loves. And it's just one of many directorial decisions that Lucas, I don't think, wouldn't have made that I am truly thankful for. Fisher's so great in this. Yeah, agreed. Scene 3 of what I would like as a painting happens here. There's a long shot of the Falcon at dusk as a gunfight is going on. And in the dark, we see just a beautiful shot of lasers just getting thrown back and forth, lighting the ship as they pass. Oh, God, I love that shot. Fuck. We also see that the stormtroopers really need to go to target practice. (laughs) One troop has Chewbacca literally as close to him as I am to my laptop right now, and he misses. He's also a big fucking target. Yeah! (laughs) Yeah! Look at these then blaster marks. Only stormtroopers can be so precise. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> then we see Luke move quietly through the chamber, and he is met up by an extremely pissed-off Darth Vader. <laughs> he once again has both hands on the saber, and he is just swinging for the fences with each and every blow. He surprisingly gets struck on the shoulder, and in this instant he realizes he must take this kid seriously, and he cuts his hand clean off, just like Kenobi did to that guy in the cantina last week. And, again, how Luke did to the Wampa earlier in this film. Yeah, Franchise loves and, dismemberment. Oh my goodness, yes. And here is a scene that not too many people knew about, as it was written in the script that Vader would say, Obi-Wan killed your father. But literally minutes before they were to shoot it, Kirshner took Hamill aside and told him what Vader was really going to say, once they got James Earl Jones in the recording booth. And he concluded the conversation by saying that whatever you do, don't tell David Prowse. <laughs> who loved to blab after these films were done rapping. Yeah, he done said, I'm going to tell you something. I know it, George knows it, and you will know it. So if it gets out, we'll know it was you. Exactly. And apparently, Mark Hamill talked about, he's like, I couldn't tell anybody, because telephone, telegraph, telecarry, because she would... <laughs> <laughs> and he goes, I was at the premiere, and when that happened, Harrison looks at me and goes, Hey, kid, you didn't fucking tell me that. <laughs> I, I love that story. Of course, later on, when he saw the film, Prowse threw a fit because he said that if he had known that's what he was going to say, he would have delivered it differently and more appropriately. Sure. Yeah. Through, through physically raising his arm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But this scene, I gotta admit, it was hard for me to process as a kid. It was so hard that I vividly remember, again, my father just taking me to McDonald's afterward, and I really wanted to discuss whether it was true or not. Now, the twist is out there. Everyone and their sister knows (laughs) that Darth Vader is Luke's father. (laughs) Like that? (laughs) But that doesn't deter me from liking it. I think its power is very high, and Vader's proposal of having Luke join him and rule the galaxy has to be enticing. But after the emotion of it all, after just feeling betrayed by what he was just told as opposed to what his trusted mentor, Obi-Wan, Kenobi told him years before, Luke is just stunned and he jumps down, not to get away, but he's trying to commit suicide here. Yeah, I mean, he's he's done. And he's not going to let Vader have him. 
and he's got no way to know he's going to survive. That's it. He's done. Uh Uh-oh. I hate this fucking scream. (laughs) Oh, yours has a scream. See, yeah. All right. Just do the Wilhelm scream. It would have been a better way to go. Or just, you know, it's more powerful if he does nothing, because he's already accepted that he's likely falling to his death. Cut to silence. Well, it was silence in the original cut. Keep it silent. (laughs) Well, here's what they did. They added this in the special edition. But it had such a response like you just gave that they eventually cut it out. So I don't even think it's on the Disney Plus version, is it? It's on my Blu-ray. I agree with you. That is awful. Awful. I think it's the same one they use for Palpatine in, at the end of Jet. <laughs> so Luke sees little to no hope of living anymore. It's only through the rebirth that comes with falling through and down this tube that he ends up alive. It's a new hope, if you will. That pull. Exactly. Yeah. It is here where Luke has one more hope. He calls for Leia who hears him, and they head back to rescue him. And I love how Lando argues with this, with this idea. Chewie just growls at him, and he's like, all right, fine. <laughs> Lando's such a great addition to this cast. I mentioned earlier in this podcast, there was one scene in this added edition that's just egregious to me. Right. And I fucking hate it with a passion. Jeez. Oh, we get another scene inserted for the special edition. Now, in the original cut, we see Vader walk with his officer and then simply utter the phrase, bring my shuttle. Simple. And I'm pretty sure, even as a child, I was informed exactly where Vader was going. He was headed back to his ship. But in the special edition, they take unaired footage from Return of the Jedi and insert something from the original Star Wars recordings, where Vader says, Alert my Star Destroyer to prepare for my arrival. We then see him enter this ship, and when the drama is picking up between our three characters here, we have to see him land on his Star Destroyer. Was there really that much clamoring for how and why this bastard got back on the fucking stupid Star Destroyer? Yeah. Ugh, I hate it. It just destroys the flow of the film. It's such a weird... If you hadn't seen without, you would... I don't know if it would make, you know, any sense. It is such a weird, unnecessary addition. Serves no purpose other than that. Did people just wonder how Vader got back to his ship? Yeah, it's just the height of unnecessary. Goudreau, you didn't even notice that, did you? <laughs> I feel like I just, I felt, much, much like Obi-Wan, I felt a great disturbance as millions of brain cells in my head were <laughs> suddenly silenced. <laughs> I know, it's a weird hill to die on, but <laughs> it, just, it throws me off every time. Cause I'm like, okay, here we go. We got to go through five minutes of Vader getting on this ship and then getting on his yeah. Superstar Destroyer. I mean, Lucas found, by Lando of all people, and they get under him just enough so that they, he can fall and Lando can emerge from a hatch in the ship and catch him. And then we get perhaps the most heroic moment of the film, and it's done by a little droid by the name of R2-D2. So as I said earlier, the running joke of this film is that the hyperdrive on the Falcon is just not working. Even before this moment, Vader gets word that the hyperdrive, while fixed by Lando's people, was once again deactivated. So Lando gets ready to punch it into light speed, and when they do, the exact same thing happens as before, which is the function just dies. <laughs> And I, I love how Chewie and uh, Leia, they look at Lando, and he s- says the exact same thing that Han did earlier. It's not my fault! <laughs> and Chewie's had it, man. He's been dealing with this fucking ship this entire movie. <laughs> so, and he could only halfway put 3PO back together. He witnessed with his own eyes his best friend turn into Carbonite, and then taken away. He's done. So when he once again growls and throws his arms up and shoves people out of the way in anger, I sure as hell don't fucking blame him. 
But R2, in the middle of fixing 3PO, moves to the controls himself and turns the switch that finally, after waiting almost two hours for it, finally launches the Falcon into hyperspace. As punctuated by an excited 3PO, R2 himself, and of course, another magnificent piece by John Williams. Oh, I love this moment. That's not my favorite moment in it. I absolutely love it. I think it's fantastic. It's great to see. I think it's important to point out that that's not just a joke in this movie. That's like the running joke throughout this entire movie series. <laughs> it's a damn Falcon-like hyperdrive. My favorite part is when it goes to hyperdrive, is on his ship, looking, turning away, and then stopping and doing a double take. Like, did that mother force <laughs> just it's, it's hilarious when you look at it and realize it's Vader doing a double take to make sure what he saw happen just happened. Yeah, that's, that's grand, and I, and I love that Kirshner did that, because he awesomely uses a shot of Vader's cape, right? And the looks on the workmen's faces are like, uh-oh, we're screwed. Someone's getting... Yeah, Darth Vader's double take, though, is what completes it. We then see the rescue mission about to launch. Lando has decided to raid Han's closet and grab his guard from the first film. <laughs> Such and, a weird choice. It, it is. I, I, honestly, I'm trying to find logic in it, and I can't. And Luke himself is being outfitted with a new hand. We see some beautiful shots of ships taking off, the droids once again nicely cleaned up, and Luke and Leia standing hoping they can rescue their friend. For a film as bleak as it can be for these characters, I, I like that they found a way to end it with a little bit of hope. I think it's beautiful. Going to the medical frigate, it panning out, and it is one of the times I think the additions that they did for the special edition look really good, because you get some extra shots inside some of the ships, some of the matting is done better. It's it's nice, the music swells, but it's such a... Seeing the fleet this way, which we haven't really seen before. So you're starting to realize that the Rebellion, you know, they're down and out. The Empire struck back huge, but the rebellion still got a force here. There's still something to be fighting for. you got a sense of hope. It's not gone, but, man, the Empire just really did some damage. And, yeah, I like the way that this finishes a lot. It's a quintessential cliffhanger where there, there is a resolution. The hero gets an opportunity for change. To join Vader, he doesn't take it. Everyone, they've regrouped for the first time since the first act to swap out Han for Lando, uh, and you have a lead into the next movie. So I, I think it it leaves you wanting more in a good way, while still feeling like you got enough of a of a full movie. You know, because how often do we complain about franchises nowadays where it just feels like a lead oh into the next movie? Yeah. And that's kind of what Marvel has sort of fallen into recently. All right. That does it for The Empire Strikes Back. On a scale of 1 to 10, what do we give the second and what a lot of people call the best of the entire nine-part saga? Adam, you go ahead and go, sir. There's some amazing stuff in this movie. And the first part, really, I think, is the direction and acting is so much tighter, cleaner, and all in all, better than what we got last week. And whether you're going to put that all on Kirshner or the actors themselves, or just that it's, you know, Lucas not being at the helm and giving all the instructions and editing and everything else. Empire Strikes Back is one of those rare sequels that takes what come, came before, amplifies it, and, you know, really accelerates the story along as opposed to just retreading what came before. There's escalation in everything that came along here and not just in the story, escalation in direction, in sets, in design, in creatures. And it's 
it's really a, a wonder to behold. I have some issues throughout this movie with its pacing, and I think that's where this movie doesn't really get nitpicked as much as it should because the story is so well done and because the ending is so picture perfect. But, man, there's some parts in this movie where it's it's got quite a bit of gristle, and I think that hurts it a lot. I don't know if Richard Lucas could have helped this movie. I know they were starting to not get along at this point, but I don't think it's nearly as edited as well as Star Wars was. But I do think the story is strong. I think the acting is better. The direction is better. The music is absolutely fantastic. And it is probably a cliffhanger like we had not seen in any movie up to that point. And I know it was enough for opening weekend, my father, to take me at four years old to go see its sequel. And I can't imagine, you know, anybody not being riveted for it as well. So I think this is a masterpiece of a film. But because of issues with its pacing, I'm going to put it just below my score for Star Wars. Now, that's not to say that I don't think it's a better film. Because depending on what I want to watch, this is a better film. But i got to be in a mood for the dark story, which at those times will help me through the pacing problems. But overall, I'm giving this an 8.5. I think it's wonderful. I think it's amazing. But I think it's just still a hair below that original Star Wars. 8.5 from Adam. Matt, you've had quite a few hot takes on this. What's your... Final score for The Empire Strikes Back. I think personal preference is really the key word when it comes to my thoughts on this movie. I vastly prefer A New Hope, even though I think there are some things in this that are superior. I think dialogue being the biggest. But I appreciate in A New Hope how tactile everything feels and that there's imperfections. The stormtrooper hitting their head on the ceiling or the the inexperience of Mark Hamill as an actor showing through, or everything having this kind of, not low budget, but also not amateurish. Like, it it feels like a movie that flew by the seat of its pants, which it did. Here, despite being independent, it does feel a little bit more of a, you know, what you'd expect around this time period. But this is a movie that also, for being a sequel, it's also kind of a remake when you think about it. What I mean by that is you got Luke being knocked unconscious by an alien, like he does with the same people, you got Leia being captured by Darth Vader again. You've got Luke learning about the Force from an old Jedi in a cave. A lightsaber battle where the good guy loses. The scoundrel having a change of heart. A lot of beats here, but, you know, it's like poetry. They rhyme. To use a phrase that got beaten into the ground as much as the word Skywalker does in this franchise. There is a lot to like here. But for my personal taste and me not being as enamored with the mystical components of Star Wars. This is not my favorite of the saga. And for the record, A New Hope is not my favorite either, but I, I still prefer it. So I'm going to go... I, I don't think me giving it this score is an indictment on the movie as a whole. It's just I'm also grading these movies based on my perspective of the whole series. So I gave A New Hope a 9. I'm going to give this one a 7. 7 out of 10 from Mr. Goudreau. You know, there's a common misconception that out of 
all the films in Lucas's original trilogy. This is his least favorite. I think that's taken way out of context. I think personally it might be his least favorite because this movie cost him his marriage. It cost him his friendship with Alan Ladd Jr. It cost him both a working and personal relationship with Gary Kurtz. And due to the fines that I talked about beginning this podcast, it cost him his SAG card. If the experience of making a film cost me that much, I'm not sure I would look back on it too fondly either. What this movie didn't cost him was the power and engagement The Empire Strikes Back has to offer. And when I was thinking about what to score today, I uh, came to the conclusion that I do not see any flaws in its writing, in its flow, in its directing, in its power to still to this day. I've seen this movie, God, an enormous amount of times. And every single time we get to that final leg of this movie, my emotion creeps up my spine tingles i'm so engaged by what this movie has to offer there was a point where i just put my notepad down and i just sat and i just watched and then i rewound it and then i took notes on what was going to happen for a lot of this i didn't even have to take notes because of how many times i've seen it but i think this movie's power to engage honestly this is great storytelling i think this is great filmmaking i think the lighting in this is much better i think the way uh Kirstner has these characters interact is superb and i love how we have a good guy we have a set of good people and we have a really really bad guy who just makes his point in the galaxy to find what eventually we will know by the end of the film is the sun this movie is a 10 out of 10 for me i'm giving this a perfect score by the end of this movie i definitely want more and i think this movie's power to be as good as it is is due a lot to of course its creator we have to give credit where credit's due i mean this again like i said in the beginning of this podcast lucas laid it on the line here despite star wars being a massive success the biggest success of all time he put it all on the line and he ended up taking out so many bank loans and i mean i think it was pretty easy to assume that this was going to be successful and it was going to get its money back but there was a lot on the line here, and uh, the fact that he gave this to his old USC professor and told him, just do what you do with it, and then he eventually had to come back to the set and direct a few scenes because it was going way over budget, his money was getting depleted, he had to find ways to kind of save it. You know, stories about the first cut and everything, I've heard those too, Matt, but uh, I am going to give a lot of the credit, again, to its original creator. I think everything just kind of... And the end fell together. And you guys had a lot of bad things to say about the Dagobah scenes. I love those scenes because of, because of what Luke eventually becomes. We'll talk about how Yoda's handled next week. But for this week, I think, like the rest of this movie, I think those scenes are perfect. So, yeah, 10 out of 10 for me on The Empire Strikes Back. It's safe to assume I probably will not give next week's movie a 10 out of 10. I know for a fact, Goudreau, you are not going to give Return of the Jedi a 10 out of 10. What do we have to look forward to when we talk about Return of the Jedi next week from you, sir? I think it's going to be a wicked good conversation. <laughs> so I share it with everybody. I've had a very shitty two weeks, which is why I have not done any impressions, but rest assured, Jabba, Salacious Crumb, Yoda, Palpatine. I, I don't think I can do wicked. Never tried, but they are coming next week. I have a lot to say about Jedi. I think it's, I think it's the most fascinating of these three movies when you look at it as far as totality. And having said that, I'm very pissed off that I wasn't able to make the 40th anniversary theatrical screenings because uh, I wanted to have that perspective for these shows, but alas, uh, things have not aligned. So just don't don't get locked in a room with a rancor, and uh, we'll see you next time.
Like the movie we just discussed, very downtrodden <laughs> preview there by Mr. Goudreau. Adam, what, uh, you said this was one of the first movie-going experiences you remember. What, what do we have to look forward to when we talk about Return of the Jedi from you next week? For me, it went just like Matt, i got to say. I was looking forward to going to seeing the 40th anniversary, and it's not playing within 40 miles of my current location, even though I live in the Bay Area of California. So blank you to everybody who decided to hear Disney for not putting this out wide. What the hell? Um... I'm really looking forward to this discussion because I think Return of the Jedi, based on what year it is, is either maligned or loved or ignored when it comes to this original trilogy. And I think it's fascinating in that way. Lawrence Kasdan, we got the screenwriter of it, who's also screenwriting one of the biggest movies that we're ever going to discuss as well. We're doing the big chill, right? Well, we're doing doing (laughs) Dreamcatcher eventually. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, between him, between Marquand, I think there's going to be an amazing amount of stuff to discuss when we return to discuss Return of the Jedi. And it's not all going to center on the forest moon of Endor. Yeah. Distinct memories of next week's film. Distinct memories of its original run. Because, yes, again, I was in theaters opening weekend with my parents twice. Once with my dad, once with my mom and dad. And Adam, you know my mom. She was really looking forward to that Return of the Jedi screening. I still re- she wasn't. I can still remember the Burger King glasses. You know that we. Had yeah, me house. too. Oh my oh. God, yes. Yeah. They had one of uh, Darth Vader and Luke in the throne room yep. that I had. Out of those lead line um, glasses, kids. Mm-hmm. Boys, I would like to thank you for going on this journey. I was very reluctant to go on, but I've spent two podcasts having a absolute blast talking about these movies and boy we have uh, seven more times where we're going to be just as glowing right guys Yay. more than seven <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah more than seven we'll, we'll discuss those next week but thank you all for joining us and until next week when we discuss return of the jedi the podcast will be with you always thank you gentlemen i know I'm looking for someone. Looking? Found someone you have, I would say. (laughs) Thank you for listening to this episode of the Three Men in a Retrospective podcast, exclusively on Percolated Media. Hold easy. Join us next week for an entirely new review. No, I will not be quiet, Chewbacca. Why doesn't anyone listen to me? And if you would be so kind, please take a moment and give us a positive review and rating on your podcast platform of choice. It truly helps others find and discover our podcasts. Oh yeah? Watch this. Watch what? And if you like this podcast, please head over to percolatedmedia.net 
or search your podcast stream of choice for some of our blockbuster retrospectives such as Avatar, Top Gun, the films of Martin Scorsese and Leonardo DiCaprio, Pirates of the Caribbean, and many more. No disintegration. Men in a Retrospective podcast is produced by Garrett, Matt, Adam, and Nathan. They'd be crazy to follow us, wouldn't they? Shut him up or shut him down! Edited by Garrett. A long time ago, I'm sure he's forgotten about that. Voiceovers by Adam. Don't blame me. I'm an interpreter. I'm not supposed to know a power socket from a computer terminal. It is useless to resist. The Three Men and a Retrospective podcast is for review and discussion, and all clips, music, and audio cues are used as such. I thought they smelled bad on the outside. Surrender is a perfectly acceptable alternative in extreme circumstances. The Empire may be gracious enough. Thank you. Impressive. If you want the person to direct the sequel to a long-standing, critically acclaimed sci-fi movie, you get Irvin Kirshner. And I think it's crazy that we have discussed RoboCop two before we ever discussed <laughs> and we did what was his bond movie damn it oh never say never again never say yeah never. and he did but I, that's yeah, what i did. say when someone says you want to watch it again no never say never but <laughs> most likely never impressive you know i mean that little mortgage that he had to take out on a house and now he owns hundreds of acres up in marin county you know some of the most beautiful picturesque area up here yeah. not 45 minutes from where i live so mm-hmm. yeah it's it's definitely a gamble that paid off so do you you sit your 45 minutes away have you ever seen george lucas riding a tauntaun <laughs> no snow is a garret I, area <laughs> yeah oh god yeah let's uh let's... your apartment pictures it looks like hoth <laughs> it most certainly is it sometimes. Impressive. Because I'm sure Harrison Ford was like, look, I got Indiana Jones now. Like, is this the end? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is probably a big reason why he wanted to be killed off, but we'll talk about that. Harrison Ford, so let's talk about, Harrison Ford oh, go ahead. didn't want to do any more Star Wars movies after Empire. I've never heard that before. <laughs> <laughs>
impressive. We then see Luke in a cave. Now, this cave scene is funny because we haven't really talked about... Oh, yeah, we did. <laughs> we did talk about the re-release in the uh, beginning, so... Um, this, uh... <laughs> impressive. It wasn't nearly as common, and I think that's why she has stood the test of time. It's also one of the reasons I'm offended that it took decades before Hollywood seems fit to give her a star on the Walk of Fame, because Carrie Fisher deserved it decades ago. Wow, did she just get a star? Next week. Oh my god! She, her screenplays alone, she deserved a star. Yeah, she's just, she was such a script doctor way back when. Oh, we're going to talk about all those films this year, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I think Lucas had the assumption that since everybody knows that Luke's his father, we're not going to play with this suspense anymore. We're just going to make it a more of a uh, continuity of the saga. Adam, you have probably seen both scenes. What do you think about the way this scene is portrayed, both then and now? Adam, are you there, sir? Yes, I am. Whoopsie. Okay. <laughs> I hope you heard the rest of everything I talked about. Mute button. Um, <laughs> I think that... Impressive. This is the condensed version of that movie Pitch Black with Vin Diesel. Jesus. <laughs> oh my god. Another series you've been begging me to do. No, I have not been begging to do Riddick. Don't, don't, <laughs> don't, put, don't use the Jedi mind trick on our list. <laughs> I'm going to do that series. There we go. <laughs> well, god. look... Riddick, Vin Diesel, Fast and Furious crossover wouldn't be the most absurd thing we have ever seen in these airwaves. Because, you know, these movies are about family after I don't even know what the fuck is canon anymore. I know. <laughs> it's hard to know anymore. A funny story, I, I told us at Binge, but I had a weird, uncomfortable run-in with Billy D. Williams at a con one time. Whoa. Well, well, what well, have we here? Good Joe, you remember this, right? No, you mentioned this on the Batman 89 show. Oh, did I? Yeah. Okay. Bas for people who haven't listened to that, I basically was on my way into the restroom while Billy D. Williams was on his way out, and I had that uncomfortable moment of, do I stick my hand out to shake his hand or not and say, nice to meet you? But I just basically said, I basically just said, nice to meet you, and kept walking. It was, And he looked at me like, what the fuck is this guy? It was so uncomfortable. Impressive. We cut to Han, who is also not in a good way, as he's being lowered for carbonite tests. When Vader, um, oh gosh, I, lost, I just lost my point. Okay, when Vader emerges, impressive. Lando's such a great addition to this cast. Wearing Han's clothing. Okay. Wait, no. Yeah. Oh, well, we're gonna get there. Yeah, yeah. We're yeah. gonna get there. Yeah, not yet. Cut. All right. I mentioned that there was one. Go ahead, Adam. What are you gonna say? Nothing. Who's they cut? Edit. Okay. <laughs> So Luke is looking. Luke is looking. Luke. Impressive. I know it's a weird hill to die on, but <laughs> it just it throws me off every time. I'm like, okay, here we go. We gotta go through five minutes of Vader getting on this ship and then getting on his yeah. superstar destroyer. I mean, between that and the incest, it's looking for love in Alderaan places. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> Luke, I don't even know if I'm gonna put that in the bloopers. Luke. <laughs> 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 
impressive. Most impressive.